0: Buffalo Bills safety DeMar Hamlin remains hospitalized in Cincinnati following his collapse last night during a game against the Bengals. The Bills say he had a cardiac arrest after a tackle. It's Tuesday, January 3rd. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown. Coming up, we'll have the latest on Hamlin's condition. Also, ahead, the long and winding road in Washington for House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy, who fell short in the first two rounds of voting for Speaker of the House. And Governor Charlie Baker says thanks to the people of Massachusetts
1: and reflects on the things he'll remember most as he prepares to leave office. Despite a myriad of political fights and distractions that were raging all around us, people here chose to focus on the work and it paid off. We'll hear some excerpts from Baker's address.
0: It's 401, now this news.
2: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Congressman Kevin McCarthy's bid to become Speaker of the House appears to be in peril. As NPR's Lexi Shapiro reports, the California Republican is facing opposition from the party's most conservative wing as the vote moves on to a third ballot.
3: McCarthy failed to secure the needed 218 votes from within his narrow House majority as 19 members defected in the first round of voting. That sent the vote to a second ballot for the first time in 100 years. Some conservative members had come out against McCarthy after the midterm elections and have yet to be swayed. On the second ballot, the defectors unified around Representative Jim Jordan, even after Jordan himself voiced support for McCarthy.
4: I think Kevin McCarthy is the right guy to lead us. I really do or I wouldn't be standing up here giving
3: this speech. McCarthy has said he will stay in the fight no matter how many ballots it takes. Lexi and NPR News, The Capitol.
2: Get well wishes and prayers continue to pour in for Buffalo Bills safety DeMar Hamlin, who collapsed on the field during last night's game against the Cincinnati Bengals. As NPR's Emily Olsen reports, fans are also showing their support by raising money for a toy drive he started in 2020.
3: DeMar Hamlin launched the Chasing M Foundation just before he was selected as a six-round NFL draft pick. After he suddenly went into cardiac arrest on Monday night, fans found a 2020 GoFundMe page for the charity, which raises money for a toy drive. Before Monday's game, the foundation had raised just a little over $2,900. But within hours of Hamlin's collapse, that number had climbed above $4 million. More than 150,000 individuals have donated so far. Hamlin's family says the money will be used for more back-to-school drives and a kid's camp in McKees Rocks, Pennsylvania, where the star player was raised. Emily Olson, NPR News.
2: FTX co founder Sam Bankman Fried pleaded not guilty in a Manhattan court today to charges he cheated investors and lost billions in consumer investor funds. This, as federal regulators are warning banks to be careful about any business activity involving crypto assets. Here's NPR Scott Horsley.
5: Regulators say events of the last year have spotlighted the risks associated with crypto assets, including fraud, volatility, and the sudden loss of confidence that triggers mass exodus by crypto investors. The Federal Reserve, the FDIC, and the controller of the Currency issued a joint statement saying it's important to safeguard the traditional banking system from these risks. Regulators say they're carefully reviewing any proposal for banks to engage in activity involving crypto assets. The statement stops short of a prohibition, but says issuing crypto tokens or holding them as capital is likely inconsistent with safe and sound banking practices. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington.
2: The 63-year-old man accused of carrying out the Brooklyn subway attack last April has pleaded guilty to terrorism and weapons charges. Frank James appeared in USS Court today. Prosecutors say James set off smoke bombs and opened fire on a crowded train during morning commute. 23 people were injured in the attack. You're listening to... NPR.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. As Massachusetts prepares for governor-elect Mara Healey to take over on Thursday, outgoing governor Charlie Baker said an official goodbye to the Commonwealth today. WBUR's Anthony Brooks reports on the governor's online farewell address.
6: Baker said after eight sometimes crazy years, he leaves office with mixed emotions. He said he and Lieutenant Governor Karen Polito were fortunate to be invited to thousands of fairs, ribbon cuttings, conferences, dinners, and diners. And he paid tribute to the people of Massachusetts for their kindness and generosity. Baker also took credit for a number of accomplishments, including managing the pandemic and the state's
1: finances. We took a billion-dollar budget deficit, turned it into a $5 billion surplus, and gave $3 billion back to taxpayers and put $7 billion into the state's rainy day fund.
6: Baker's term officially ends Thursday, when Maura Healy will be sworn in as the next governor. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Anthony Brooks.
0: Former Rhode Island Governor Lincoln Almond has died. The moderate Republican was the first governor in the state to serve a four-year term. He served two straight terms beginning in 1995. Before that, the Central Falls native was a longtime U.S. attorney in Rhode Island. Almond was 86 years old. Several Boston-area school districts are encouraging students and staff to wear face masks for the next few weeks. Boston, Newton, Lexington, and Arlington, among the public school districts, strongly encouraging face coverings. The recommendations are a response to concerns of a potential spike in illness following the winter holiday break when many students traveled and attended large gatherings. It's time to start thinking about getting rid of your Christmas tree. Curbside pickup for real trees begins in Boston next week, but if you need to get rid of your tree sooner or want to give it to a good cause, WBUR's Stevie Chapman shares some alternatives.
7: Your Christmas tree is a tasty treat for local goats. Michelle Olson with Goats to Go in Georgetown says the farm is accepting them this year.
8: It acts as a natural dewormer that's actually really fun for them to kind of help their own digestive system.
7: Local Boy Scout troops also pick up and dispose trees for an annual fundraiser. Troops on the South Shore send theirs off with flair during the New Year's bonfire at Weir River Farm in Hingham. Ann Smith-White oversees the farm and says people who attend the January 7th event can bring their trees too.
9: Otherwise, these trees would be going into a landfill. It creates this great fertilizer.
7: Whatever option you choose, be sure to remove decorations first. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Stevie Chapman.
0: In sports, the Celtics take on the thunder tonight down in Oklahoma City. The forecast rained tonight. The lows will be around 40 degrees. Cloudy tomorrow with a chance of showers throughout the day. The highs will be around 41. Rain is likely on Thursday, a high of 41 degrees. Could get some snow early on Friday before changing over to clouds and rain. The highs, 39 degrees. Right now it's 45 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR.
10: WBUR supporters include DuckDuckGo, a company committed to making privacy online simple. DuckDuckGo's app includes a private search engine, web browser, and email protection with one download. More at DuckDuckGo.com.
11: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers.
12: DeMar Hamlin remains hospitalized in critical condition after suffering cardiac arrest in an NFL game last night. He collapsed in the first quarter of the matchup between his Buffalo Bills and the Cincinnati Bengals. The game was postponed after Hamlin was transported by ambulance to a hospital. NPR's Tom Goldman joins me now. Hi, Tom. Hi, Juana. So, Tom, what's the latest news on DeMar Hamlin's
13: condition? We're not getting a lot, uh, bits and pieces, mostly from his team. And this afternoon, the Bills released a short statement. It read, DeMar Hamlin spent last night in the intensive care unit and remains there today in critical condition at the University of Cincinnati Medical Center. We are grateful and thankful for the outpouring of support we have received thus far. Now, there have been no details from UC Medical Center doctors about Hamlin, about what caused his cardiac arrest, which followed what appeared to be a fairly routine tackle in last Last night's game. I spoke to a UC Health spokeswoman this afternoon and asked if there were any updates or press briefings scheduled and the spokeswoman said not at this time.
12: Hmm. So have we heard anything today from his family? I understand that family members were at the game last night and reports say that his mother rode with him in the ambulance to the hospital?
13: Yeah, that's right. Um, uh, In a tweet today titled, From the Family of Damar Hamlin, it said, We want to express our sincere gratitude for the love and support shown to Damar during this challenging time. We are deeply moved by the prayers, kind words, and donations from fans around the country. Now, it's pretty extraordinary, Juana, what's happened with those donations. DeMar Hamlin started a GoFundMe page last month to raise money for Christmas toys for underprivileged kids. His original goal was $2,500. At last check, donations were more than $4.5 million mm. and climbing. Um, The family's tweet also acknowledges the first responders at last night's game who tended to Hamlin almost immediately after he collapsed. Their efforts using CPR and reportedly a defibrillator were critical in getting his heart restarted on the field. Uh, The family also acknowledged the healthcare professionals at the UC Medical Center who've been treating Hamlin since last night.
12: So, Tom, through these terrifying circumstances, DeMar Hamlin is suddenly a household name, but... What else? What can you tell us about him?
13: Yeah, you know, it's safe to say outside of Buffalo or Pittsburgh, where he played in college, he was not well-known, only 24 in just his second year in the NFL. His foundation and toy drive tells you something about who he is, and also... In an interview on the program, One Bills Live, Hamlin talked about how special it's been to play alongside Buffalo defensive back Dane Jackson, who's a few years older than Hamlin, but the two were childhood friends and college teammates before playing in the NFL together. Here's Demar.
14: Um, just having someone like Dane just being able to just play with me, um, it feels so surreal. Like I can't even describe it, but I, I cherish it every second that I can, you know, every second of every day. We just had our prayer, our, our DB prayer we do every Wednesday. Mm. Outside, he was next to me, and I just grabbed his hand a little bit harder just because, you know, you never know when, like, the last day could be that you get in to experience something like this, you know. So I'm just – I'm cherishing it every moment I can. Mm.
12: And, of course, amid all of this, a lot of mine's not on football, but this did happen during a game last night about an hour after Hamlin collapsed. The NFL postponed that game. Are there any updates about what might happen there?
13: Yeah, the NFL said today in a statement the Bills-Bengals game will not be resumed this week. The league said the decision came after speaking with both teams and leaders of the players' union. The NFL hasn't made a decision on uh, possibly resuming the game at a later date. You know, this all comes during the last week of the regular season when teams are jockeying for playoff position. In fact, last night's game was a highly anticipated one. Buffalo and Cincinnati are two mm-hmm. of the NFL's best teams and the and the outcome would have helped determine who gets a bye at the start of the playoffs. Not significant though, uh, though right now for obvious reasons.
11: NPR's Tom Goldman, thank you, Tom. You're welcome. Republican Congressman Kevin McCarthy insured his place in history today. By falling short in the first vote to become Speaker of the House. Today marks the first time in a century, 100 years, that a speaker was not chosen on the first ballot. Jillian Brassel is a congressional reporter with McClatchy, D.C. She is in the Capitol. Jillian, thanks so much for joining us on a really busy day. Thank you.
15: Yeah. Thank you for having me. I want you to step
11: back because I know you've covered him a long time. Help us understand why does he want this job so badly?
15: Right. Kevin McCarthy has been in politics since he was in college, so he is Bakersfield through and through. He represents California's new 20th Congressional District, and he's been there his entire life. When he was in college, he started working for then-Congressman Bill Thomas and later went on to the California State Assembly in 2002. for the last two years of that position, actually, he was the minority leader in the California State Assembly chamber. So when he came here, elected in 2006, to succeed his congressman that he had been working for prior to that, he quickly rose through the ranks to become the GOP's third in command, later on to become the House Majority Leader. And in 2015, actually, he had a bid to become Speaker at the time, but Fell short and withdrew before he ended up getting there. Obviously, right. he's the House Minority Leader as of last term.
11: You're describing someone who's had his eye on this top job for a long time, who feels like he's been training for it, and that is um, that is squaring with something. I, I read some of the reporting uh, by your fellow reporters there on the Hill today. Politico was reporting that he that he shouted, "I earned this job," at his detractors today. That that he seems to have a sense that he has owed the speakership. He 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 won this.
10: Right.
15: Yes. Kevin McCarthy is someone who definitely tries to get a lot of people on his side. He Definitely has been negotiating this for a while. And in that caucus room this morning when he was speaking to his fellow Republicans about securing this position today, he was was saying, what do you need uh, essentially for me to get this? One of his biggest concessions actually that he made in order to try to secure the vote and uh, support was agreeing to a rule that would allow just five lawmakers to call a snap vote at any time to oust the speaker.
11: Mm hmm. He, I mean, he's been known over his career and certainly uh, in his years on Congress as as a people person, somebody good at attracting allies as he tried to rise through the ranks in his party. How should we square that? How do you square that with the man we're watching today, hemorrhaging support, battling with opponents?
15: Yes, that's been something that's really defined his career, and I can say that going all the way back to Bakersfield, where people there still know him as Kevin, as someone who walks around in uh, jeans and t-shirts, um, someone who still orders red sauce and beans at Luigi's, which is an Italian deli there. He definitely knows how to fit the crowd that he's in. Um, he definitely knows how to appeal to whoever he's with at the time, but. That seems to have fallen short at this moment uh, as he's tried to make these concessions to get people, uh, especially from the House Freedom Caucus, on his side and supporting him.
11: Yeah. Uh, We just have about 30 seconds left. But how is this playing with his constituents? Are they following this drama in Washington? Does he have their support?
15: Yeah, I've been in the House all day, so I haven't had the opportunity to speak with constituents directly as of this moment. But I have to say about the San Joaquin Valley in general, where Bakersfield is, a lot of people don't follow the Washington, D.C. sort of politics. They're they struggling with a lot of certain other issues, as it's a very rural agricultural area that right. needs a lot of support in different ways.
11: That uh, is McClatchy, D.C. congressional reporter Jillian Brassel. Thanks very much. Thank you.
12: A Russian citizen was found dead today in eastern India. Normally, that wouldn't make international headlines, but this is the third Russian to be found dead in the same part of India in a span of less than two weeks. That's prompted questions about whether the deaths are a tragic coincidence or possibly something more sinister. NPR's Lauren Freyer reports from Mumbai that the story began right around Christmas.
16: Two Russians were found dead in a span of four days in the same hotel. In Breathless
17: reports have been airing on the Indian TV for the past 10 days, with details straight out of a spy novel. Mysterious deaths of Russian citizens days apart in a relatively poor part of eastern India. One of the victims was a multi-millionaire sausage magnate and Russian lawmaker named Pavel Antov. He reportedly had earlier this year briefly put out a message that was critical of the war in Ukraine. The message was later deleted, and he posted support for Vladimir Putin. But right around Christmas, he turned up in the news in India. He'd apparently fallen to his death from a third-story hotel window in the Indian state of Odisha. Police said he was on vacation there. But Odisha is far from sites most popular with foreign tourists. Around the same time, one of Antov's traveling companions, a fellow Russian, was found dead in the same hotel. Afterward, the medical examiner told Indian TV that the bodies had already been cremated, no evidence retained. Indian authorities have provided scant detail. They even blocked journalists from visiting the hotel where Antov and his friend died. That has fueled speculation, since Russia does have a track record of assassinating dissidents. Asked about all of this at a foreign ministry briefing, an Indian government spokesperson, Arundham Bakshi, called the Russian deaths unfortunate.
18: And we need to figure out what what exactly are the details, but this is for the... It's a police and uh, matter, so I, I don't want to jump that gun.
17: He declined to comment further. Today, police had another matter to deal with, though. Another Russian body. That of a 51-year-old engineer found dead this morning in his sleeping compartment on the commercial ship where he worked. It was docked in an Indian port in the same eastern part of the country, Odisha. Lauren Fryer, NPR News, Mumbai.
13: You are
11: listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown. 45 degrees in Boston at 419. Ahead on All Things Considered, we'll take a look at some ways to make pregnancy safer. That's ahead here on WBUR. On Wall Street, stocks closed the first trade a day of 2023 down slightly. The Dow was down 0.03% at 33136 NASDAQ down 0.76% at 10,387, and the S&P 500 off 4 tenths of a percent at 3824. In other business news, the spinoff of General Electric's healthcare division becomes official tomorrow. Boston-based GE approved that change back in November. It's the first of three planned spinoffs. GE Healthcare Technologies is known for making medical equipment like ultrasound machines. Starting tomorrow, that will be based in Chicago. Its stock will trade on the NASDAQ and be part of the S&P 500 index. This is 90.9 WBUR.
19: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Margulies Peruzzi, designing buildings and inspired workplaces that help companies reach their goals, hybrid workplace strategy reports, and more at mparchitectsboston.com.
0: Stay informed with all that's happening in the news. Listen on the WBUR mobile app while you're working out or heading out the door to work. In the forecast, we'll have rain tonight, the lows around 40 degrees, cloudy tomorrow, chances of some showers throughout the day. The highs will be around 41 degrees. Right now it's 45 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR.
20: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their clients' best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments and in securities involve the risk of loss. And from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 find food for meetings and team lunches, tax-exempt ordering and delivery nationwide at easycater.com.
12: This is All Things Considered from
11: NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. The U.S. stands out for its high rate of maternal mortality. It's a crisis that disproportionately affects Black Americans, and it's only gotten worse during the pandemic. But we do have tools to make pregnancy safer. NPR's Laura Benshoff reports on lessons learned from
3: one longstanding program supporting new parents. A couple of years ago, Lauren Brown had a high-risk pregnancy. Brown was over 35, she had high blood pressure, and she'd had a blood clot that could have been deadly. That required her to take a medication during pregnancy called Lovinox.
9: That's a blood thinner, so I had to do that, inject myself every day.
3: When it came time to give birth to her daughter, Bella, Brown needed an emergency C-section.
9: When my OB said her heart rate is skipping a little bit, both her dad and I just like, okay.
3: All of this increased the likelihood that Brown's pregnancy could have taken a dangerous turn. But she looks back at that time calmly.
9: You know, it was a little scary, but being that I had the nursing group, I really felt like my pregnancy was very smooth.
3: That nursing group is part of a national program called the Nurse Family Partnership. It pairs low-income, first-time moms with a personal nurse until their child is two where Brown lives outside Philadelphia it's run through a local community foundation.
9: Hi, Bella. Hi, Bella. Oh my goodness. On a
3: recent Bella. visit nurse Christina Baker checks in with Brown and Bella, now a toddler. Baker says her job isn't just to follow her patients medical care closely, but to help parents do that too. And that's one thing I try to stress with them
21: early on is you need to advocate for yourself because this is your baby, this is your
3: pregnancy and we want the best outcome. With so much bad news about pregnancy-related deaths in the U.S., it can be easy to lose sight of this fact. We know a lot about how to do better. The Nurse-Family Partnership model has been studied for decades. Joyce Edmonds is a nursing professor at Boston College who's not affiliated with the program. I'm a fan
20: of the Nurse-Family Partnership project because as a scientist, when I look at the data, it's extremely compelling
3: studies show the partnership lowers the rates of some maternal mortality risk factors such as high blood pressure but it can cost more than nine thousand dollars per family and it doesn't fix bigger gaps in health coverage such as the millions of uninsured adults in the u.s dr rose molina an OBGYN and professor at harvard medical school says that stat is troubling because of how chronic illnesses make pregnancy more dangerous.
22: It's really important that people get access to high quality primary care and so they can have chronic diseases like hypertension and diabetes better managed so that they're the healthiest they can be during pregnancy.
3: As a result, some researchers say expanding federally backed health insurance, known as Medicaid, could make a big dent in the maternal death rate. As of 2022, 11 states have chosen not to do that. Molina says beyond big policy changes, there's work to do on a smaller scale to address the crisis.
22: I think there's a growing recognition that trust is a critical component that has not been given the full attention that it needs.
3: Part of the Nurse-Family Partnership model is building a trusting relationship. Research shows having a nurse, doula, or midwife in your corner can help bridge the racial divide in pregnancy outcomes. 19 year old mom, J.D. Lorenzo, has had trouble with trust in the past. She had depression when she was younger and remembers getting passed around between therapists.
23: So now I have to sit here, tell my whole life story again, get comfortable with them, do stuff with them,
3: and then they leave again. DiLorenzo says she likes that her nurse through the partnership, Carol Kriesman, has been checking in reliably since about March. Baby Hayden was born in May. During a recent visit, he's all gummy smiles in his red onesie. Kriesman gushes about his latest milestone.
16: And Jay, he can sit up now. Sure. Yes, he can. Cute, yeah. so
3: cute sitting up. And she'll be there for his next milestone, too. Laura Benshoff, NPR News.
12: If the World Cup has left you hungry for more World Championships, can I suggest the World Darts Championship? No, seriously, hear me out here. The competition is wrapping up today in London, and it has been quite the spectacle. As professional darts players face off for the top prize of half a million pounds, about $600,000, darts fans gather in costume, and they drink a lot. Writer Lauren O'Neill covered this championship for Vice, and she joins us now from London. Welcome.
24: Hi, Lana. Nice to talk to you.
12: Good to talk with you, too. Okay, so I'm thinking about other sports events that I've gone to. Say if I'm watching soccer or a basketball game, you can sit back and see the action from pretty far away, but it seems like with something like this, darts, that wouldn't be the case. So tell us, how interesting is it to watch the game in person and how close are people getting?
24: You would think that it would kind of be impossible to see, but the way that the World Darts Championship is set out kind of makes the case for live darts being one of the most compelling sports you'll ever see (laughs) in your whole life, amazingly. So we have what they call the oki, which um, has the dartboard and that's where the players stand to throw the darts. And either side of that there are huge screens, essentially, so what we're seeing is a live TV broadcast, we're seeing the close-ups that viewers are seeing on TV, so it does really make for quite a tense spectacle, and the fans really um, do get into it, there's lots of cheering for certain players, there's some jeering, um, but yeah, in, in the room, the atmosphere is pretty electric, I have to say, which, again, you wouldn't expect, but it's kind of amazing. Mm-hmm.
12: You know, it sounds like this can get pretty rowdy. And I've heard that one of the competitors this year actually wore these noise-blocking earmuffs to kind of drown out all that extra noise.
24: Yeah, that's right. Um, I don't know if it was a little bit of the showmanship or whether he genuinely did require it. But yeah, it can get really rowdy. It's known for being a big drinking event. People go in all sorts of crazy fancy dress. And yeah, it's kind of, it's very tongue-in-cheek. It's just a bizarre spectacle of the likes of which... As I say, I've kind of been around the block, but I've not really seen anything like that. I'm very glad I got to.
12: (laughs) So for those of us who have not been around the block, have not seen anything like this, (laughs) would you be able to just tell us about a few of these really elaborate get-ups that people wear to watch?
24: Oh my God, of course. I got off the train at the train station closest to the event. I saw these two guys and they were dressed up as wizards. And I thought, that's quite funny. And then I turned my head to the other side and I saw about six guys dressed as hot dogs. Um, And I was like, okay, so this is what we're getting into. Uh, I talked to a guy on the way up from the station to uh, the event who had come with his friends and they, uh, <laughs> it was very funny actually, uh, they said that they had come in Squid Game costumes because they'd ordered the sweatsuits for a bachelor party but actually they didn't arrive in time so they brought them to the darts instead. Uh, like 18 year old kids dressed up as the full cast of The Wizard of Oz, saw a guy dressed in a full spider-man suit who was just sitting next to me watching the darts yeah i've seen everything i've seen it all there's there's a big culture of people just wanting to get silly at the darts and fancy dress
25: is a huge part of that
12: so i understand that you initially went to these championships in your capacity as a journalist but i've got to ask you now do you think you're a fan are you gonna head back next year
24: Yeah, I mean, I've been following uh, the action somewhat since I went. I got the bug a little bit, but um, yeah, I'm I'm very much hoping to go next year. um, Maybe next time, maybe not in such a professional capacity. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I definitely definitely could see myself as a darts convert for sure. That was culture
12: writer Lauren O'Neill talking about the World Darts Championship, which is wrapping up today in London. Lauren, thank you so much. Thank you.
11: This is NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown. 45 degrees in Boston at 4.30. Ahead on All Things Considered, we'll hear some excerpts from Governor Charlie Baker's farewell address to the people of the Commonwealth. That's ahead here on 90.9 WBUR. The forecast will have some rain tonight. Lows around 40. Cloudy tomorrow. Chance of showers throughout the
26: day. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by semester off an education and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college students and high school grads get back on track. Spring semester starts January 23rd, semesteroff.com. The money ladies are back.
25: 2022 was a year of inflation. And then 2023 is really the year of unpredictability because we just don't know.
27: Michelle Singletary and Rana Fruhar will be our guides for what to watch for in your personal finance and the national economy this new year. That's On Point tonight at 7, 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station.
5: Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. On Capitol Hill, Republicans are poised to take back control of the House of Representatives, but it remains unclear who will lead those Republican lawmakers. So far, the chamber's former minority leader Kevin McCarthy has failed twice today to win the needed votes to become House Speaker. The last time a potential House Speaker faced multiple ballots was 100 years ago. NPR Susan Davis says the California GOP leader is battling right-flank conservatives in his party who refuse to give him their votes.
20: He has spent the weeks since the election trying to shore up support behind his bid for the speakership. He has been making concessions to members, particularly on the far right of the party, to try to get them in the fold. And despite all of those efforts, he has not moved a vote to the yes column, at least publicly, in those weeks.
5: Nothing can happen in the House until a speaker is elected, so this process will continue until that happens. Reporters for a daily British newspaper are being asked to work from home until further notice. The decision has nothing to do with the coronavirus pandemic, but rather a cyber attack, as NPR's Jenna McLaughlin reports.
25: Days before Christmas, the British newspaper The Guardian broke troubling news about its own media company. According to the paper, part of the Guardian's technology infrastructure at its office in London was hit by a so-called serious IT incident. The attack is believed to be ransomware, where criminals demand a ransom to unlock stolen and encrypted files. However, the media company hasn't made any detailed statements. Journalists continue to publish the paper, but everyone is working from home until at least January twenty-third, according to an internal statement to employees. The Guardian is just one of the latest victims in a global spree of costly and damaging ransomware attacks. It's a problem governments are focused on combating. Jenna McLaughlin, NPR News.
5: Stocks finish lower on Wall Street. This is NPR.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston there are new rules of the road in massachusetts designed to protect bicyclists and pedestrians yesterday governor charlie baker signed a road safety measure into law it requires additional mirrors and visibility devices on large trucks and side guards to prevent bicyclists from getting swept under the moving vehicles Longtime bill sponsor senator will brownsberger says the safety measures are in response to recent problems in greater boston
28: we've had tragic accidents where trucks swinging around swept somebody under their wheels. And we've had accidents where trucks started up and crushed people who were right in front of them, but they just couldn't see because of the the
0: height of their hood. The new law also requires cyclists to wear red lights on their back to increase their visibility and requires drivers to give four feet of space when they pass a pedestrian or cyclist on the road. Cannabis company TrueLeave has reached a $14,000 settlement with the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, or OSHA, over an employee's death last year in Massachusetts. An OSHA investigation found 27 year old Lorna McMurray died of asthma after she inhaled ground cannabis dust at the company's Holyoke facility. Two of three citations against TrueLeave were dropped in the settlement. The company will have to perform a study to determine whether ground cannabis dust must be classified as a hazardous chemical. The new year signals new beginnings and, in some cases, transitions of political leadership. This evening, Paul Heroux will be sworn in as Bristol County Sheriff. He beat longtime incumbent Tom Hodgson in this last fall's election. Today, Governor-elect Mara Healy is on a two, on day two of a three-day trip around the state, ahead of her inauguration on Thursday. She's attending drives for meals and supplies in Taunton and Yarmouth. And tonight at 6, Somerville Mayor Katyana Ballantyne delivers her state of the city address. It's the start of her second year in office. Fenway Park is preparing to host more outdoor hockey this week. Yesterday, the baseball stadium hosted the National Hockey League's Winter Classic between the Bruins and the Penguins. On Friday and Saturday, the park will be the site of four college hockey games. It's 4.35.
10: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink Software for technical computing and model-based design, accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science, MathWorks.com.
0: Well, of rain tonight. The lows will be around 40 degrees, cloudy tomorrow, chances of some showers throughout the day. The highs will be around 41. Rain is likely on Thursday, a high 41 degrees. Could get some snow early on Friday before it changes over to clouds and rain. The highs will be around 39 degrees. Right now it's 44 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR.
20: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from Eric and Wendy Schmidt, through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org.
11: It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. In Florida,
12: Governor Ron DeSantis was sworn in for a second term today. The event, held outside the Capitol building in Tallahassee, presented a contrast with the turmoil among Republicans in Washington as they struggled to elect a House speaker. In his speech, DeSantis, a likely 2024 presidential candidate, gave few hints about his plans for his second term as governor. Instead, he focused on conservative policies that he said have made Florida a model for the nation.
5: We will never surrender to the woke mob. Florida is where woke goes to die.
12: NPR's Greg Allen has been covering DeSantis since he was first elected Florida governor and joins us now. Hey, Greg. Hi, Juana. So, Greg, that phrase we just heard, Florida is where woke goes to die, that's becoming sort of a recurring theme for him. What does DeSantis mean by that?
28: Yes, he's uh, turned it into kind of a shorthand phrase to refer to any progressive or liberal policies that he opposes. Uh, Some examples, in his first term, DeSantis and his Republican allies in the state legislature placed restrictions on how schools can discuss issues involving race, sexual orientation, or gender identity. And he's worked to get uh, conservatives elected to local school boards where they've scrutinized books, curricula, and policies that involve transgender students. And he used that phrase election night after winning his race by one of the largest margins ever as governor in Florida. Got a really big response then. And as you heard, he got another big response today.
12: All right. So setting that aside for a second, what else did you hear from DeSantis today? What other topics came up?
28: Well, few specifics on his plans for a second term. He uh, signed a law last year banning abortions after 15 weeks, and he said in the past the state may adopt more stringent restrictions on abortions this term, but he didn't say anything about it today. He also said in the past he wants to sign a bill allowing Floridians to openly carry firearms. Again, nothing about that today. Republicans did really well in Florida, though, in the recent election, and they now have a supermajority in the legislature. So lawmakers are likely to give DeSantis really anything he wants, especially now that his star is rising in the Republican Republican Party, and many believe he could be president someday. Today, DeSantis talked broadly about continuing his policies that he began in his first term.
5: We will enact more family-friendly policies to make it easier to raise children. And we will defend our children against those who seek to rob them of their innocence.
28: You know, that broad comment can mean different things to different people. Mm -hmm. But one thing I think people are looking at is DeSantis' administration's concerns in recent weeks about drag shows in Miami and elsewhere. They've taken steps in some cases to make sure that children aren't able to attend those shows.
12: On now to 2024, did DeSantis give any hints today at all about his possible presidential ambitions?
28: Uh, not directly, but the tone of his speech was very short on specifics about what's ahead you know, for Florida in the second term. And that's something you typically hear in these addresses. Susan McManus, a professor emeritus of political science at the University of South Florida, was in Tallahassee for DeSantis' inauguration, and she said she didn't hear it as a typical inaugural speech.
1: This was not just
20: about Florida. This was about the national audience. His theme of the free state of Florida was interwoven with just about every comment he made.
28: The free
12: state of Florida, what is DeSantis getting at there?
28: This is another one of his catchphrases. He was one of the first Republican leaders to tap into the frustrations with restrictions that came out of the COVID pandemic. And he signed orders and laws banning vaccine and face mask mandates in Florida. And Florida saw a big influx of newcomers last year and was the nation's fastest growing state according to the census. DeSantis attributes the growth to his relaxed COVID policies.
5: Florida was a refuge of sanity a citadel of freedom for our fellow Americans and even for people around the world.
12: And Greg, if DeSantis does run for president, will he have to step down from his job as Florida's governor?
28: Well, under the current law, that does appear to be the case. Uh, So far, however, he's shown no signs that he's ready to officially begin running for his party's nomination. He's already raising a lot of money. He raised $200 million last year as Florida governor. Tickets for his inaugural ball tonight run as high as a million dollars. As governor, he can continue to raise money and visit the primary states that he wants. And this might be the key thing. He can avoid talking about the elephant in the room whether he's ready to go head-to-head against the one candidate already in the race for the gubernatorial GOP nomination, and that's former President Donald Trump.
11: NPR's Greg Allen, thank you. You're welcome today soccer fans in Brazil said a last goodbye to Pele the master of the beautiful game they paid their respects to the soccer star at a 24 hour long wake held at the stadium of his former club Then a fire truck carried his casket around the city of Santos and delivered it to his final resting place Well we are joined from Santos Brazil by reporter Anna Ionova, who was there watching it all and Anna sounds like what an amazing what a what a rich day you have just witnessed in the city that Pele made famous. Tell me what you saw.
29: Yes, it's been quite something watching this unfold. Uh, so Pele's wake is drawing to a close today, but people are still pouring out on the streets to mourn this country's biggest soccer hero. really. The crowd was lining up yesterday and then all night. Some had traveled hundreds of miles to say goodbye. And there's a lot of chanting and cheering on the street as people waited for the casket to exit the stadium. Uh, Many of them wore the white and black Santos shirt that Pele made so famous. And um, outside the stadium, I talked to Claudia Diegues, who was actually craning her neck to catch a glimpse of Pele's casket as it left the stadium today. Now, she told me about just how important Pele was in making Brazilians proud of their country.
21: It's Pele's symbolism for our city and for the whole world. I'm
12: from Santos. I was born here. I always rooted for the Santos Club, just like my dad, who played football. Pele gave our country visibility. He
21: showed the rest of the world that
3: we
11: also have good things here. Yeah, I was struck, Anna, just watching the pictures streaming in of the streets so jammed with people, as you describe, and their arms are in there and they're all saluting as as the coffin passes. Do you have any crowd estimates how many people came
2: out?
29: Yeah, definitely. It was really impressive. We don't know for sure yet, but some estimate that at least 230,000 people passed through here in 24 hours. Many of them were ordinary people of all ages, some with small children or elderly relatives. Uh, some athletes, artists, and politicians from around the world also came to bid their farewell. Um, and of course, this morning, we had President Inacio Lula da Silva, who also came by to pay his respects. When he came out, the crowd went wild, erupted in cheers both for Pelé and for Lula! <laughs> Now, the casket will be taken to a cemetery uh, overlooking the Santos Stadium, where Pelé will be laid to rest. I suppose it
11: tells you something about his stature in the country, that the president came out to pay respects to Pelé. Why, Why exactly is he such an important figure to Brazilians?
29: Well, Pelé's story just resonates with so many people here. He was a poor Black child who used to shine shoes before turning into a global superstar. Outside the stadium, I spoke to Juno Rodriguez Ferreira, a black man from the city of Sao Bernardo do Campo, and he told me he credits Pele for breaking down barriers for future generations too.
30: What really stuck with me was seeing Pele with this white santo shirt, number 10. I think seeing this black man in it symbolized so much. He opened up the world to black people.
29: So as you heard here, Pele is seen as a hero who overcame inequality and racism to get to the top.
11: That is Anna Ionova in Santos, Brazil covering the funeral procession for Pele. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's NPR.
0: This is all things considered on 90.9 WBUR. I'm Steve Brown. Tomorrow will be Charlie Baker's last full day as governor of Massachusetts. Governor elect Mara Healy takes over on Thursday at noon. Today, Baker delivered a farewell
1: address to the people of Massachusetts. Here are some excerpts from that speech. After eight sometimes crazy years as your governor, I thought I should take a few minutes to deliver what my late mom would have called a proper goodbye. This one comes with mixed emotions. Lieutenant Governor Karen Polito and I will leave the State House tomorrow for the last time. We will do so with love and appreciation for what you, the people of Massachusetts, have shown us from day one. Your kindness and generosity were always on display. Neighbors helping neighbors, local leaders going above and beyond, businesses big and small standing up for their communities. And with your help and in collaboration with our legislative colleagues, we went on to accomplish so much more. We took a billion dollar budget deficit turned it into a $5 billion surplus and gave $3 billion back to taxpayers and put $7 billion into the state's rainy day fund. We delivered major infrastructure projects long promised but never done. We passed the first major housing reform bill in decades so we can finally do something about the cost of owning a home. And we did it all without partisan bickering. I could go on, but where we really got to work together was during the pandemic. When food pantries got stretched thin, local leaders adapted, recruited new volunteers, partnered with the National Guard, and delivered for their communities. Across the state, you manned texting sites and vaccine clinics and helped us find medical gear, made major adjustments to the way you worked and the way you played, checked in on your neighbors and supported first responders healthcare and other frontline workers. And while I know that many of you didn't agree with all of the decisions the Lieutenant Governor and I made during the pandemic, you tried your very best to abide by the rules and to share in the work to be done. I believe that's why we've recovered almost all the jobs we lost during the pandemic, why we have an unemployment rate that's below the national average, and why the nationally renowned Commonwealth Fund concluded that we did a better job of managing the pandemic than every other state except Hawaii. Despite a myriad of political fights and distractions that were raging all around us, people here chose to focus on the work and it paid off. The personal and professional generosity from the Berkshires to Cape Cod and every place in between was always there. We were there too, in the front row, watching it and appreciating it for eight cherished years. We've been fortunate to be invited to thousands of fairs, ribbon cuttings, conferences, dinners, and diners. But one event for me stands out. On a trip to DC in 2021, I visited the Massachusetts National Guard members who were deployed to the Capitol. 450 citizen soldiers, ages 18 to 58, from every corner of Massachusetts, from every race and religion, all there to serve their commonwealth and their country no matter when the call comes. That visit for me is the embodiment of the commitment and generosity of the people of Massachusetts. It is our fervent hope that your generosity never wavers. It is truly what makes you special and it's the foundation on which we can continue to build great communities and a great commonwealth. We are deeply grateful for the gifts you've given us over these past eight years. And I want you to know that you will be sorely missed by the two of us and by our teams. God bless you. Those are excerpts from Governor
0: Charlie Baker's farewell address to the people of Massachusetts. Stay with WBUR as we provide coverage of Baker's final day tomorrow and join us Thursday morning at 11 for coverage and analysis of the inauguration of Governor-elect Mara Healey. And coming up next on WBUR's All Things Considered, a college that was once a Native American boarding school is trying to confront its violent past and reclaim education for Native people. That's ahead here on WBUR. And coming up in the next hour at 5, California GOP Rep Kevin McCarthy is in a fight to secure the needed votes to become Speaker of the House. That's ahead here on WBUR. Coming to City Space on January 25th, journalist and historian Dart Adams discusses his book, Instead, We Became Evil, about the life of Danish rapper Slyman. Tickets at WBUR.org slash events.
19: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Direct Tire and Auto Service, a dealer alternative. Your local mechanic and tire dealer serving Newton, Watertown, and the surrounding communities. DirectTire.com. For many Gen Zers, unions are the way forward.
7: In order to work for the rest of our life, we are going to need to advocate for ourselves in terms of pay and health insurance, but also how we're treated.
2: I'm Kimberly
12: Adams, the new face of labor unions, next time on Marketplace.
26: Tonight at 6.30 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station.
12: This is All Things
11: Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. The federal government is investigating the more than 400 Native American boarding schools that once operated in the U.S. And as that investigation continues, some indigenous people are pushing to reclaim a system that once persecuted them. Boarding schools used education as a weapon to assimilate Native people in a strategy historians have called cultural genocide. Colorado Public Radio Stina Sieg reports. Jocelyn Lee's first experience of science was
21: as a little girl on the Navajo Nation.
31: And it was really with my grandma, my Nellie. She helped me look at different plants, and this was when we were herding goats. She would
21: eventually fall in love with chemistry. Lee now teaches it here at Fort Lewis College in Durango, Colorado.
31: <laughs> this is a um, Here, I think I had an amino acid.
21: She rifles through a a box box of blocks uh, students use to construct models of um, molecules. um, Lee is uh, the department's uh, first uh, ever native uh, professor uh, at a school uh, where uh, almost uh, half uh, of undergraduates uh, are uh, indigenous. uh, In 1911, Colorado began offering uh, native people uh, free uh, tuition uh, at Fort uh, Lewis uh, as part uh, of an agreement uh, with uh, the federal uh, government, uh, which had forced native people from these lands years before. Sometimes in lab, Lee will hear students teasing each other in Diné, her native language. She encourages it.
31: Just like welcome that that's a safe space for them to be able to use some of their vocabulary from their own indigenous language to then be able to be themselves in lab. Native
21: students used to be beaten for speaking their language at some boarding schools. Fort Lewis operated as a boarding school from 1891 to 1910 and became a college in the 1930s. When Lee was an undergrad here, she'd walk past historical markers that whitewashed the school's history, describing it as a place where Native people, quote, developed excellent skills. She was shocked to find these were still up on a clock tower in the heart of
31: campus when she returned to teach a few years ago. I was thinking of how I would feel as a student seeing these images and what they depicted, and I don't want another student to see that. The administration ultimately agreed.
21: After Lee wrote the college's president and the school held more than a year of listening sessions, the markers were removed. But the history of Native American boarding schools still hangs over the U.S. education system. Fort Lewis's Majel Boxer says one of her grandfathers actually escaped from one of those schools in Montana.
23: Just as a family, we're proud of him. (laughs) You know, like, we're glad that he had that spirit, that he didn't want to stay at boarding school, and so he left. But Boxer, associate professor
21: of Native American and Indigenous Studies, knows most Native children were not that lucky. And likely all of her Native students are descendants of boarding school survivors. She says in order for them to succeed, they need to feel comfortable bringing their whole selves to college.
23: Where they don't feel like they have to live in two worlds the way former boarding school students had to do. Boxer
21: is an enrolled citizen of the Fort Peck, Assiniboine, and Sioux tribes and says teaching helped inspire her to start sewing traditional ribbon skirts with layers of colorful ribbons stretching around them. She wears one every
23: day to class. I do think that that matters, and it helps our students be more comfortable. If a professor's wearing her ribbon skirt as part of her daily wear, then why couldn't they?
21: And she is starting to see more students wearing their ribbon skirts. Despite Fort Lewis's large Indigenous enrollment, only about 6% of the faculty are Native. But Boxer says they're working to Indigenize instruction here, from drawing on their students' own Native knowledge to allowing them more absences to go home for ceremonies and
23: family matters. Today, as contemporary Native peoples, we need to see education not through that adversarial lens, but to see education as a tool, and the tool is for our own goals.
21: And every student I speak with at Fort Lewis has the same goal, to return home to help their community. Justin Dash is twirling a lasso in the parking lot and practicing roping a plastic, bright orange steer. Dash, who says he learned to ride a horse before he could walk, started the school's rodeo club. He's studying to be a physical therapist and dreams of returning to his hometown on the Navajo reservation, Tuba City, Arizona.
13: Recently, we had our Navajo Nation Fair, and there was only two EMTs parked there. Um, Lots of injuries with the bull riding and all that, so I'd love to go back and help with all of that.
21: He says money is one of the biggest things keeping Indigenous people from a degree.
13: I've seen people grow up in shacks,
1: sheds, broken down trailers.
21: And some of his friends who did make it to college had to drop out to help their families. He thinks that maybe more scholarships will help dismantle the mentality he felt surrounded by growing up.
13: Oh, I grew up poor, then I'm going to be poor. My family didn't go to college, so I'm not going to college.
21: Dash is a first-generation college student and says he feels blessed his parents can help pay his way. But Byron Tapete, director of the Fort Lewis Student Involvement Center, knows many young Native people don't have that support. In addition to Fort Lewis, a growing number of universities are now offering tuition waivers to Native students. But Tapete says that's
32: only part of the equation. To provide the cultural sustenance that Indigenous students need in higher education in college is another thing.
21: The first in his family to graduate college, he did not feel prepared for college growing up on the Navajo Nation. Tapate says universities need to reach out to prospective Native students more. And once they're on campus, they need to be supported and embraced for
32: who they are. If you're going to make a commitment to serving Indigenous students, it doesn't stop at enrollment.
21: And it takes acknowledging the painful past at places like the Fort Lewis Indian School, which eventually grew into Fort Lewis College. Its original buildings still stand on about 6,000 lonely acres outside of Durango. In warmer months, classes are held here and produce is harvested. As Heather Schotton, Fort Lewis's vice president of diversity affairs, steps onto the snowy grounds, she feels a sadness for what
23: happened here. But not just that. With many of our programs and with our college today, I feel a sense of hope in the reclamation that I see happening.
21: Reclamation of an educational system that once tried to erase the identity of an entire people, including Shotan's people. She's a citizen of the Wichita and affiliated tribes and a Kiowa and Cheyenne descendant. Her aunts, uncle, and grandparents were boarding school survivors. I think about them all the time. They give her strength as she works within higher education to heal the past and look toward the future, a process that she says may never be finished. For NPR News, I'm Stina Sieg in Hesperus, Colorado. It's NPR News.
20: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Mattress Firm dedicated to providing personalized service with the goal of helping people sleep well so they can live well. Customers can shop their range of products in-store or online at mattressfirm.com. And from the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief, Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon, I'm Steve Brown, 43 degrees in Boston and a minute before five o'clock. Ahead, as All Things Considered continues, California GOP Representative Kevin McCarthy is in the fight to secure the needed votes to become Speaker of the House. We'll have that and much more coming ahead on All Things Considered.
10: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at
17: ROADscholar.org learning. I'm Ideas and Opinion Editor Chloe Axelson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston,
12: 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station.
13: We struggle with trust with Mr. McCarthy, because time and again, his viewpoints, his positions, they shift like sands underneath you.
0: Republican Kevin McCarthy's bid to become House Speaker ran into opposition today from other GOP lawmakers. It's Tuesday, January 3rd. This is All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Steve Brown. Ahead on WBUR, we'll have the latest from Capitol Hill on the vote for Speaker. Also ahead, new laws are going into effect in several states that require employers to publish salary ranges for job openings. And remembering Anita Pointer of the Grammy Award-winning group The Pointer Sisters, who has died at the age of 74. She was the lead vocalist for many of the group's hits, including Yes We Can, Slow Hand, and I'm So Excited. It's 501. Now this
33: news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Leadership of the House of Representatives hanging in the balance today as Republicans remain divided over the path forward. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports the vote for the Speaker has turned into a marathon session on the House floor where frontrunner Kevin McCarthy has suffered two historic defeats in balloting. It appears headed for a third in his bid to claim the gavel.
22: Right now, it's unclear how Kevin McCarthy will secure the votes that he needs. But it is clear that he's in it for the long haul, vowing not to step down. Speaking ahead of the first ballot, McCarthy took aim at a group of conservative hardliners who continue to block his bid.
26: They even came to the position where one, Matt Gates, said, I don't care if we go to plurality and we elect Hakeem Jeffries and it hurts the new frontline members not to get reelected. Well, that's not about America. And I will always fight to put the American people first, not a few individuals that want something for themselves.
22: McCarthy has spent weeks making concessions to the right flank of the party in hopes of getting the votes he needs to become the next speaker. Windsor Johnston, NPR News. Washington.
33: Football fans around the world continue to hold their collective breath following last night's collapse of Buffalo Bills defensive back DeMar Hamlin. Hamlin collapsing following a tackle in last night's game against the Cincinnati Bengals, where according to the team he suffered cardiac arrest and spent nearly 20 minutes being given medical aid on the field while the respective team players stood by. Hamlin was then rushed to UC Medical Center where he remains in critical condition. The NFL postponed last night's game and has only said the game is not going to to be replayed this week sam bankman fried the co-founder and former ceo of the cryptocurrency exchange ftx has pleaded not guilty to eight criminal charges St. pierre's david gore reports he could spend the rest of his life in prison if he is found guilty
18: sam bankman fried entered his plea in person in u.s district court in lower manhattan he flew to new york from northern california where he's living with his parents out on bail secured by a 250 million dollar bond Wearing a suit, he chatted with his lawyers at a table in a packed courtroom. His mother, a Stanford law professor, sat two rows behind him. Bateman fried is accused of orchestrating one of the largest frauds in history of misleading FTX customers and investors. The judge set a start date for a trial, October 2nd, and the government expects it will take almost a month. In the coming weeks, federal prosecutors will finish discovery, collecting and processing hundreds of thousands of pages of documents central to their case. David Gurra, NPR News, New York.
33: Shares of electric vehicle maker Tesla starting the new year on a down note, that's after the automaker says while well, it sold a record 1.3 million vehicles last year, the number still falls short of founder Elon Musk pledged to grow the company's sales by 50% every year. Stocks also trading lower today on Wall Street, the Dow was down 10 points, the Nasdaq fell 79 points. This is NPR.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon, I'm Steve Brown in Boston. Massachusetts is one of six states with the highest flu rates in the country. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention says that's according to data from the week that ended on Christmas Eve. State data show more than 5% of hospitalizations in Massachusetts in this time period were associated with the flu. That's five times higher than this time last year. There are also over 7,000 confirmed flu cases in the state during that week. Other areas of high flu rates include Maine, Idaho, Nebraska, Colorado, New Mexico, and New York City. A new network of community behavioral health centers, or CBHCs, are open today across Massachusetts. The 25 centers provide walk-in urgent and routine mental health evaluation from 8 to 8 on weekdays and 9 to 5 on weekends. They'll also offer ongoing outpatient care and help people access acute care. Damien Cabasis heads North Suffolk Community Services, which runs a CBHC in East Boston.
13: No one should have to
18: face barriers when they're accessing behavioral health services. So we're very pleased to be able to provide a welcoming environment and provide services when and where individuals
0: need it. The state is urging people to avoid emergency rooms for mental health care except in emergencies and go to the CBHC in their region. The centers are listed on the state's website. The new Massachusetts board that oversees law enforcement has suspended 15 officers the officers are from Boston-area departments, including Needham, Woburn, Somerville, Stoneham, and Watertown, as well as departments statewide. Former Natick officer James Quilty is on the list. He resigned from the department last month after he pleaded guilty to sexually assaulting a dispatcher. A WBUR investigation found the town tried to hide details of the assault secret for more than two years. The Massachusetts Peace Officer Standards and Training Commission, or POST, must suspend officers who are arrested, charged, or indicted for a felony. Post can also suspend officers who fail to complete training requirements. Some state lawmakers want Massachusetts to soon modernize and increase the capacity of the state's power grid. State Senate Republican leader Bruce Tarr says the grid will need to handle more and more electrical energy as renewable sources go online and as demand increases.
28: We're increasing the use of electricity for a number of different things, from transportation to space conditioning in homes and other buildings. And it's imperative that we have a transmission system and a distribution system that can deliver
0: the electricity that we're going to need. Tara says it's also important to increase the supply of energy to prevent more cost increases and demand challenges. In the forecast, we'll have some rain tonight. The lows around forty degrees. It'll be cloudy tomorrow. Chance of showers throughout the day. The highs around forty-one degrees. Rain is likely again on Thursday. The high 41 could get some snow early on Friday before changing over to clouds and rain. The high is around 39 degrees. The weekend looks nice, sunny skies, and highs in the upper 30s and low 40s. Right now it's 42 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR.
19: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by DuckDuckGo, a company committed to making privacy online simple. DuckDuckGo's app includes a private search engine, web browser, and email protection with one download. More at DuckDuckGo.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana
12: Summers.
11: And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Right before the House opened its new session today, California Congressman Kevin McCarthy admitted he had a fight on his hands to be elected
26: the new speaker. So we may have a battle on the floor, but the battle is for the conference and the country, and that's fine with me.
11: That battle continues for the first time in a hundred years. the vote to elect a speaker has gone to multiple ballots. NPR congressional correspondent Deirdre Walsh joins me from the Capitol. Hey there. Hey there. Hey, so I guess I'm
8: wondering just how long you're gonna need to be there. Oh, a while. Does yeah, does it look like we're going to get a speaker elected today? It's unclear, but it really doesn't look likely right now. The House is still voting. I'm across the hall now, but I've been inside the House chamber for most of the proceedings today. There's a lot of tired members, some with tired kids and grandkids there. On the first ballot, 19 House Republicans voted against McCarthy. And on the second ballot, McCarthy again failed to get a majority and again had 19 Republicans vote for Ohio Republican Jim Jordan. Uh, Jordan, for his part, is backing McCarthy. What do the people opposing McCarthy, what do they want? They say they want to change the way the House operates, and they don't have confidence McCarthy will do that. Pennsylvania Republican Scott Perry is one of the critics, and he said he brought a bunch of demands to McCarthy that have been rejected. Earlier this morning when House Republicans huddled, Perry said committee chairs threatened to remove lawmakers from serving on any committees if they didn't vote for McCarthy.
33: We literally had people in there telling us to take orders and and I can only speak for myself but I suspect my colleagues here have the same sentiment. I don't take orders from anyone in this town. My orders come from my district and my constituents.
8: McCarthy actually did agree to a lot of the changes that some of his critics wanted, including one that would allow just five members to sponsor a resolution to remove the speaker, which would weaken him. But it wasn't enough, and there don't appear any real active negotiations going on right now between McCarthy and his opponents. Well, is there an alternative Republican candidate who could win? Right now, it's unclear. McCarthy told reporters he's staying in the race until he wins, and he insists his critics do not have a path to elect someone
26: else. This isn't about me. This is about the conference now, because the members who are holding out is what they want, something for their personal selves.
8: Going into this vote today, many of McCarthy's allies vowed they would vote as many rounds as it takes to elect McCarthy as speaker, even if it takes multiple days. One mainstream Republican, Kelly Armstrong of North Dakota, described the group of McCarthy's opponents as willing to blame basically anyone else but themselves for the public division that's been on display all day.
32: There's a small group of members in our conference who have a unique and, quite frankly, enviable political position. They win when they lose. If they lose to the Democrats, they can blame the left. If they lose to the Senate, they'll blame the swamp. If they lose to Republicans, they'll blame the establishment. And they'll continue down that path without ever actually having the responsibility of having to govern.
8: For their part, Democrats are backing Democratic leader Hakeem Jeffries, but they're in the minority. And there's no indication any Democrat is prepared to cross party lines to help elect any GOP candidate for speaker.
11: So it's the classic question, but what happens next? What happens next? Where does the House go from here?
8: The House keeps voting. I mean, for now, that's the plan. McCarthy's challenge is he hasn't been able to change any votes, so he seems prepared to try to wear people down. There was one vote that did change in the opposite direction. One House Republican who voted McCarthy for McCarthy earlier, Florida Republican Congressman Byron Donalds, switched on the last vote ballot and voted for Jordan. He said earlier in an interview on CNN, McCarthy doesn't have the votes at some point. Demo- uh, Republicans are going to have to figure out who does. Yeah, And real quick, without a speaker, none of the other business of the House can happen? Right. I mean, no other business can happen in the House until a speaker is elected. Members can't even be sworn in because it's the speaker who swears them in. Committees can't form. Republicans can't pass their own rules package that will govern how the House of Representatives will operate. So we're kind of at a standstill. And Pierre Deirdre Walsh at the Capitol. Thank you. Thank you.
12: Was your New Year's resolution to ask for a raise? Well, new salary transparency laws went into effect in a handful of states on January 1st, and they just might make your job easier. NPR's Stacey Vanek-Smith reports.
16: Hannah Williams graduated from college in 2019 and went to work as a data analyst near Washington, D.C. Her salary was $90,000, and she was pretty happy with that at first. But then she started to wonder if she should be making more.
31: I started doing market research and realized for like the work I was doing, I was underpaid by about twenty dollars
16: to $25,000. Williams asked for a raise, but was told that was not possible.
31: I was really angry. I was upset with myself that I didn't advocate for myself, but I was also upset that a company had known they could take advantage of me and did because it was profitable.
16: Williams was also frustrated that the pay information she would tracked down hadn't been more available. For residents of Washington State and California, that information is now required by law. Companies in those states that have more than 15 employees will now have to include salary ranges in their job postings. Similar laws are already in place in New York and Colorado, Many business owners have pushed back against these laws, saying it will cause a managerial and financial nightmare. And that is kind of true, says Glenn Kalman, CEO of online real estate brokerage Redfin. The Seattle-based company has been posting salary ranges for years.
4: You really have to brace yourself because there are people who are underpaid, and as a business, you've benefited from that.
16: But, says Kelman, it's worth the expense because even something as small as including salary ranges on job postings quickly exposes some pretty ugly truths about pay.
1: You really
4: can't put it off because as soon as you know that some people are underpaid, you notice that the people who are underpaid do tend to be women and people of color because they just come to you having earned less.
16: And, says Kelman, the benefits of salary transparency extend beyond equity. It also forces companies to create concrete metrics for what success means in every position and how that success is measured.
4: And it is so much work. Sometimes you just want to sell houses instead of thinking about how much to pay everyone. But you signed up to do both things, not just one.
16: Hannah Williams was extremely upset when she found out she was underpaid. And one day on a whim, she just decided to go out into the streets around her house and simply ask people how much they were getting paid and make a little video about it.
31: This is Hannah Williams, Salary Transparent Street. We're in Arlington, Virginia, and
16: today we're going to ask people what they do and how much they make. Williams posted her video on TikTok. Chris, what do you do? I work in IT. How much do you make?
30: Uh, About 70K.
6: I'm a
31: lifeguard. And how much do you make? I make $15 an hour.
30: My name is Max.
31: Max,
16: what do you do?
30: I'm a contractor.
16: And how much do you make as a contractor?
30: I make $96,000.
16: Williams uploaded her video to TikTok and went to sleep. I think the next morning it had like, I think it hit a million. And it was just immediately the content
31: went viral and people were like, post more, post more. And I think like in two weeks, I made the decision to quit my job and do this full time. It was like a no brainer to me.
16: When Williams was quitting her data analyst job, her employer begged her to stay and even said she could name her price. But Williams was too excited about the prospects of her new business. Over the last year, she's made Salary Transparent Street into a full-time job, supported by sponsors, including the job search site Indeed. Williams says there seems to be an endless hunger for getting salary information and for giving it. Not everybody wants to share their salary, but often when they do, they act a little giddy.
31: Still now, it's so taboo to talk about money when they do these interviews. It's like a little protest. It's a harm, harmless protest. And it helps so many people. It inspires people. It gives them resources to stand
16: up for themselves. Williams says she's gotten thousands of messages from people saying they've seen her videos and asked for a raise. She says she hopes the new salary transparency laws will empower people to ask for more and get it. Stacey Vanek-Smith, NPR News.
11: Anita Pointer, one of the founding members of the Pointer sisters, died over the weekend of cancer. She sang the lead in many of the group's biggest hits, like I'm So Excited. She was 74 years old, and peers Andrew Limbong has this appreciation.
27: Before the awards, before the movie appearances, before the smash hit I'm So Excited, there was a sad, broken-hearted breakup song called Fairytale. Anita Pointer sang the lead and co-wrote the song with her sister Bonnie. And while other Pointer sisters' songs were indebted to jazz, Fairytale was almost defiantly country. The song earned them their first Grammy and got them an invitation to Nashville's famed Grand Ole Opry, which, according to Anita Pointer's own autobiography, led to protesters carrying signs that read "Keep Country Country." Their performance was such a hit, they ended up singing "Fairy Tale" three more times that night. Anita Pointer was born in 1948 in Oakland, California. By their commercial peak in the 80s, the Pointer sisters proved themselves to be an agile group, with Anita singing lead on many of their hit songs, from the sensual Slow Hand, I want a man with a slow hand. to the bombastic I'm So Excited. In 1995, the Pointer sisters were part of a nationwide tour of the Broadway classic Ain't Misbehavin' that included a solo Anita doing a rendition of Mean to Me.
17: you mean to me.
27: In an NPR interview with the sisters promoting the tour, Anita was asked, how did it feel to be up there, on stage, by herself, without her sisters? Great. <laughs>
9: It's something different and something new and exciting. It's nice to have some difference and not have to keep doing the same thing, same thing, same thing, same thing. And we have our moments together and each one of us have, you know, our spotlights. And I think that's a really wonderful thing.
27: While we are deeply saddened by the loss of Anita, we are comforted in knowing she is now with her daughter Jada and her sisters, June and Bonnie and at Peace, read a statement from her family. Quote, heaven is a more loving and beautiful place with Anita there. Angela Limbang, NPR News.
12: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon, I'm Steve Brown. 42 degrees in Boston at 519. Ahead on all things considered, Buffalo Bills safety DeMar Hamlin remains hospitalized. Following his collapse last night during a game, a friend of his family discusses Hamlin's condition. That's ahead here on WBUR. On Wall Street, stocks closed the first trading day of 2023 down slightly. The Dow was down 11 points at 33.136. NASDAQ down 80 points at 10,387, and the S&P 500 was off 15 points at 3824. In other business news, the price of gasoline in Massachusetts is dipping slightly. AAA reports that a gallon of regular unleaded in the state cost $3.35 on average. That's down 2 cents from a week ago. The price of mass in Massachusetts is about 12 cents higher than the national average. This is WBUR.
26: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business. Providing small businesses with cybersecurity and fiber solutions at speeds up to 10 gigs. Comcast Business powering possibilities.
0: In sports, the Boston Red Sox have agreed to a one-year contract with two-time all-star Rafael Devers, avoiding salary arbitration. Celtics take on the Thunder tonight down in Oklahoma City. In the forecast, rain tonight. The low's around 40 degrees. Cloudy tomorrow with a chance of showers throughout the day. The highs will be around 41. Rain is likely again on Thursday. A high of 41. Could get some snow early on Friday before changing over to clouds and rain. A high 39 degrees.
20: Support for NPR comes from this station, and from American Jewish World Service, supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy, equity, and justice for all people. Learn more and support at ajws.org. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com.
11: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers.
12: The Buffalo Bills, the National Football League, and the entire country have been waiting on updates on the condition of defensive back DeMar Hamlin after he collapsed last night in a nationally televised game against the Cincinnati Bengals. We know that he took a hit, suffered cardiac arrest, had his heartbeat restored on the field, and then was rushed to the University of Cincinnati Medical Center. That's where he remained this afternoon. For the latest, I'm joined by his marketing representative and friend, Jordan Rooney. Jordan, welcome, and I'm, I'm really sorry that we're talking under these circumstances
32: Yeah, yeah, thanks for having me
12: I'd like to start by just asking you if there's anything you can share with us about how Damar Hamlin is doing now
32: uh, Yeah, there's, there's no medical updates at this time uh, Still monitoring things hour by hour, day by day
17: mm.
12: So to the best of your knowledge, can you help us understand What happened after Damar Hamlin collapsed on the field during that game last night?
32: I I, because I I can't speak to any of the medical uh, facts of of the situation. Sure.
12: One detail that I've heard you share elsewhere is that he was awake as he was being taken off the field. Is that accurate?
32: No, no. Right. what I'd said was that he they got him in uh, stable. They had his vitals were stable. Okay. after he was in CPR.
12: Sure. Hamlin's family released a statement earlier today, expressing their gratitude to the medical staff who have been caring for him, both in the immediate aftermath as well as those caring for him at University of Cincinnati Medical Center. They also offer their thanks for the support being offered by fans. Can you talk to us about what that outpouring has been like?
32: Yeah, I think the you know it, it's certainly a tough time for the family. Um, I Think things like that make things just a little bit easier. Uh, they, they've been. So overwhelmed in a positive way from the outpouring of support of everyone, people donating money, reaching out, nice gestures. I mean, they're they're just extremely extremely grateful.
12: I know that he had set up a mm-hmm. GoFundMe prior to this incident for a toy drive for his foundation. I was speaking with our sports correspondent Tom Goldman last hour, and he said more than four million dollars have poured in already. Is that right?
32: Yeah, he actually set that up in 2020. Uh, he, so he has a toy drive every year. And before he was getting an NFL contract, he was using uh, he used GoFundMe to try and raise some money for it. And I think when this injury happened, everyone was looking for something to donate to. And that was the only thing that came up. Um, but it, it still goes to a good cause because he has his, his Chasing Ems Foundation, um, where he's focused on helping young people achieve their dreams. So he does a toy drive. He does youth football camps. He does back-to-school drive. And, I mean, now, I mean, you know, the, the possibilities are, are endless. Um, he, he honestly, like, he's going to be so excited when he sees when he sees that go find me.
12: You know, yeah. I'm wondering if you can just tell me, this is someone you've worked with professionally, this is your friend. Can you tell me a little bit about him as a person, who he is, what he means to the bills, what he means to his family?
32: Yeah, I mean, you know, you, you can see just... The, the people who have who, known Damar and how this has impacted them. I mean, he he's someone that, um, you know, he's charismatic. He, he has a great personality. He can make you laugh. He, I mean, he, he knows how to turn it on and, you know, be, be a, a very personable person. Um, he keeps to himself. But then, I, you know, when, when young kids are around or other people, like he's someone that, like I say, like sacrifices his, however he feels in that moment to make everyone around him feel welcome. Uh, which is something you don't get a lot of times with professional athletes.
12: Yeah. And he also seems to be someone who just really loves the game,
32: too. Yeah. I mean, and, and, you know, part of it, too. Yeah, he loves football, but, like, he's he's very emotionally intelligent. So for him, I think it's, like, the challenge. Mm. It's, like, problem-solving in a way.
12: I understand that some members of his family were in the stands at last night's game. I can't imagine what this has been like for them. How are they doing? Are they a close family?
32: Yeah, I mean, yeah, his family's the closest. Um, They're strong. He's a very, very strong support system. Um, They're optimistic.
12: That is Jordan Rooney, friend and marketing representative for Buffalo Bills Safety, DeMar Hamlin. Jordan, thank you for sharing with us today.
32: Thanks for having me.
11: San Francisco's Fisherman's Wharf, there is a museum that is not quite like any other you may have been to. The Musée Mécanique is home to all sorts of antique, coin-operated, mechanical, musical instruments and arcade games, and they all work too.
34: There's old-school pinball machines. I've got the original Pong machine. There's also the arm wrestling machine that was filmed in Princess Diaries. The list is so long, it's mind-boggling. I don't even know where to begin or end.
19: That's
12: owner Dan Zielinski. He inherited the musee from his father, who bought his first Penny Arcade machine for 50 cents in 1933.
34: He took it to his home, where his mom and dad put pennies in it, and his friends put pennies in it, and he soon had another 50 cents, and he went back to the same store and bought another machine, and that's how this entire collection started, off of several pennies.
12: That 50 cents grew into the
11: Musée Mécanique, which today boasts roughly 300 machines. And it's still growing. Zelensky recently unveiled the museum's latest acquisition, a century-old oddity called a Violano Virtuoso.
34: It is literally a piano and a violin that play together. And it's like eye candy. It's, it's just so beautiful to look at. And it also plays beautifully.
12: The machine was built circa 1914 by the Mills Novelty Company. A mahogany cabinet houses a piano in the back and a violin on top, viewable through a glass window. But instead of a conventional violin bow, four rotating wheels raise up and down electronically to play the strings.
34: I've seen some people look at it and go, after a minute, like, well, that's enough of that. I never want to see that or hear that again. And other people will stay for the entire performance of one particular tune and be awestruck.
11: Zelensky says he fits into the latter category and that his joy comes from fixing up these mechanical marvels and then sharing them with the public the way they once were.
34: Machines of this sort were everywhere in every nook and cranny in ice cream parlors, hotels, pharmacies most machines now are in just private collections where you'll never see them again, which is where this violin was in somebody's living room. And the fact that I can uh, show these machines off like they were originally intended to be used is what brings the joy to almost everyone.
12: The Musée Mécanique is open to the public 365 days a year, and it doesn't cost a penny to see the machines, but you may want to bring a few quarters to play them.
11: is NPR News.
0: And this is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Ahead on All Things Considered, California is expecting a lot of rain and snow tomorrow. And some parts of the state are especially vulnerable. The massive storm system may also cause widespread power outages. That and more ahead here on All Things Considered on WBUR. Rain's in our forecast as well. Rain tonight, lows around 40 degrees. Cloudy tomorrow with a chance of showers throughout the day. The highs will be around 41 degrees. Rain likely again on Thursday, the high 41. Right now, 42 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR.
6: More babies are born in India than in any other country.
2: As a youthful country with the largest
20: number of young people anywhere in the world, there's a huge potential to tap into.
6: The population boom could also give women a bigger role in shaping India's future. But what new challenges will their country face? Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. That's Morning Edition 5 to 9 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station
5: live from npr news in culver city california i'm dwayne brown in cincinnati doctors continue to do tests on Demar hamlin the buffalo bills player whose heart stopped following a tackle during last night's nfl game against the Bengals. from member station wvxu ann thompson has the latest
20: dave bush was at the game and called hamlin's cardiac arrest eerie and unprecedented
5: from a seasoned sports fan it's just you you hate to see
28: it i liken it to uh... You know a severe hockey injury with a skate blade or something
13: it's just one of these freak accidents bush was hanging out at the holy grail sports bar that's where
20: 11 year old jeremiah Engel was
23: when i heard what happened i thought well i hope he survives because if not that would be a tragic day for football
5: for npr news i'm ann thompson in cincinnati in northern california time is running out for cleanup from last weekend's devastating storm as a new one bears down on the area From Cap Radio in Sacramento, Mike Haggerty has the latest. Some people south of Sacramento are still unable to leave their homes, and many who were evacuated Saturday can't get back to theirs. Matthew Robinson's a public information officer for Sacramento County.
28: For now, the county is taking the respite between storms to try and Take assessment of the damage that the flood waters have done to the area and make repairs when possible.
5: The last storm's heavy rain melted existing snow in the Sierra Nevada, causing flooding south of Sacramento.
28: Fortunately, we've been told by the National Weather Service that the upcoming storm will be colder and that will help reduce the runoff.
5: Still, with up to three inches of new rain expected in the next 48 hours, other, more populated areas could flood this time. For NPR News, I'm Mike Haggerty in Sacramento. Well, stocks finished lower on the first trading day of the new year on Wall Street as tech shares put a drag on the market. The tech-heavy Nasdaq down three-quarters of a percent. This is NPR.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. As Massachusetts prepares for Governor-elect Mara Healy to take over on Thursday, outgoing Governor Charlie Baker said an official goodbye to the Commonwealth today. WBUR's Anthony Brooks reports on the Governor's online farewell address.
6: Baker said after eight sometimes crazy years, he leaves office with mixed emotions. He said he and Lieutenant Governor Karen Polito were fortunate to be invited to thousands of fairs, ribbon cuttings, conferences, dinners, and diners. And he paid tribute to the people of Massachusetts for their kindness and generosity. Baker also took credit for a number of accomplishments, including managing the pandemic and the state's finances.
1: We took a billion dollar budget deficit, turned it into a five billion dollar surplus and gave three billion dollars back to taxpayers and put seven billion dollars into the state's rainy day fund.
6: Baker's term officially ends Thursday when Maura Healy will be sworn in as the next governor. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Anthony Brooks.
1: Former
0: Rhode Island Governor Lincoln Almond has died. The moderate Republican was the first governor in the state to serve a four-year term. He served two straight terms beginning in 1995. Before that, the Central Falls native was a longtime U.S. attorney in Rhode Island. Almond was 86 years old. It's time to start thinking about getting rid of your Christmas tree. Curbside pickup for Real Trees begins in Boston next week. But if you need to get rid of your tree sooner or want to give it to a good cause, WBUR's Stevie Chapman shares some alternatives.
7: Your Christmas tree is a tasty treat for local goats. Michelle Olson with Goats to Go in Georgetown says the farm is accepting them this year.
8: It acts as a natural dewormer that's actually really fun for them to kind of help their own digestive system.
7: Local Boy Scout troops also pick up and dispose trees for an annual fundraiser. Troops on the South Shore send theirs off with flair during the New Year's bonfire at Weir River Farm in Hingham. Ann Smith-White oversees the farm and says people who attend the January 7th event can bring their trees too.
9: Otherwise, these trees would be going into a landfill. It creates this great fertilizer.
7: Whatever option you choose, be sure to remove decorations first. For 90.9 WBUR,
0: I'm Stevie Chapman. It's 535.
19: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Birch's School, a nature-based school for curious learners pre-K through 8th grade. Open house this Saturday, January 7th, from 1 to 3. More at birchesschool.org.
0: In sports, the Boston Red Sox have agreed to a one-year contract with two-time All-Star Rafael Devers, avoiding salary arbitration. Celtics will take on the Thunder tonight down in Oklahoma City. In the forecast, we'll have rain tonight. The low's around 40 degrees. Cloudy tomorrow with a chance of showers throughout the day. The high around 41. Rain is likely on Thursday. Again, the high around 41 degrees. Right now, it is 42 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR.
20: Support for NPR comes from this station, and from Procter and Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from ECMC Foundation, working to improve post-secondary educational outcomes for underserved students through evidence-based innovation. Learn more at ecmcfoundation.org. This is NPR.
11: From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Another massive winter storm will smash into California tomorrow, soaking the already soaked state with more rain and snow. The National Weather Service says the, quote, brutal system could wash out roads and hillsides, flood Bay Area streets and knock out power for much of the state. Well, here to talk about the state's preparations is Brian Ferguson. He's director of crisis communications for California. California. Brian Ferguson, welcome. Hi there. Hi. So uh, y'all are just getting walloped, it sounds like. This storm comes just on the heels of a storm over New Year's weekend that broke levees and flooded highways and I know killed several people. How ready is California to confront another big one?
18: You know, California has been preparing for this for a while. We've experienced a number of climate driven disasters, most notably wildfires. So, while we do look forward to a challenging week here that's going to require all of our citizens to be ready, the investments we've made in technology and infrastructure for other climate driven disasters are going to come into play. You mentioned
11: wildfires, which y'all have also had a lot of in California. And I wonder how that factors in. Are there special concerns in areas where mudslides, flash flooding might be more likely?
18: Yeah, the burn scar areas where we've had wildfires in recent years are more prone to mudslides and debris flows. And similarly, areas that are impacted by the drought. So the creeks and culverts and stream beds may not be able to receive water the same way that they have in recent years, either because the soil just washes away or because it's so rock hard that it becomes a bobsled shoot of, of water coming downhill. And certainly as our climate situation progresses, these can be exacerbating factors to make rain like this even worse when we do have it.
11: Right. Well, because there is, you know, the, the concern that as the climate warms, California is seeing more. I've seen the term weather whiplash being used. That The dry periods are drier and longer and then the wet periods are wetter and, and more extreme storms. How do you think about preparing long term?
18: Yeah, this really is the the, the new reality that we face and it requires not just government but individuals to change the way they think about things and whether it's making a plan for your own family and preparing for a disaster on up to us at a state level of taking aggressive action early when we see a weather pattern come in with ultimately the goal to be keep as many people safe as possible.
11: We checked with a couple of our colleagues uh, who are in California in our offices there, and they said I should ask you about just general safety precautions. A lot of Californians aren't used to this kind of heavy rain and certainly not back-to-back huge storms. Um, They mentioned things like just knowing to slow down when you're driving through heavy rain. Turn on your headlights. Don't try to just slam through what looks like standing water and you don't know how deep it's going to be. How is your team working to raise awareness of those type precautions?
18: You know, one thing we always remind people to do is sign up for alerts because information is power. So if you get those notifications from your city or county, don't wait, go if you think you're in danger and evacuate early, particularly if you have young children or maybe you care for loved ones who are getting up there in age and you need a little extra time because in a large-scale disaster like this it may be that first responders can't get to every single house.
11: Any other preparations any other precautions you want people listening to have in their heads as this storm approaches?
18: One of the things we've done is move close to 400 tons of rock into place, four million sandbags Swiftwater rescue teams on flatbed boats and jet skis and try to put those in positions across the state wow. we're hopeful that we're not going to need them but the same thing in your family have a family emergency plan of how you get a hold of your loved ones if you weren't able to access uh, your cell phone know where you would meet and what route you would take if maybe the, the route you typically drive on is uh flooded or not available
11: um, and I have to ask, I'm intrigued by the detail and the scale of the sandbags, which I hear you saying you hope you don't need. Has California ever done anything on this scale before?
18: The last disaster that we saw that was even approaching this scale was 2017, when we saw um, very challenging releases from our our reservoirs and even the possible failure of the Oroville Dam just because of the amount of water that was impacting that area. Uh, So certainly this is not unique to our state, but it's as challenging a storm as we've seen in, you know, five or seven years.
11: Brian Ferguson, he is the state emergency spokesperson for California. Brian Ferguson, thank you so much. Stay dry, stay safe.
18: Thank you.
12: Israel's new government just took office last week, and it's already prompted some international rebukes. This morning, a key cabinet minister, a Jewish ultranationalist, visited Jerusalem's most sensitive religious site, the Al-Aqsa Mosque compound. Criticism of the move came from Palestinians, some Israelis, and several countries, including one of Israel's new partners in the region. NPR's Daniel Estrin has more from Tel Aviv.
30: Under heavy Israeli police guard, new minister of national security Itamar Ben-Gavir walked the perimeter of the Al-Aqsa Mosque compound. He noted the Hamas militant group had warned against the visit. He said the Israeli government will not give in to a despicable terrorist organization. The Temple Mount is the most important place for the people of Israel. In Jewish tradition, the hilltop that's the mosque compound is where the biblical temples stood. Ben Gvir and Jewish ultranationalists have called for prayer rights and more access there. Palestinians fear Israel wants to take over the site, which is administered by Jordan. Mustafa Abu Sway is on the Mosque Advisory Council.
27: Only the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan, the rightful custodian of the holy places, the Christian and Muslim holy places in Jerusalem, are responsible for all the internal affairs at these mosques as long as the
30: uh, Israeli occupation is in place. Jordan summoned Israel's ambassador in protest. The U.S. Embassy in Jerusalem said unilateral actions that don't preserve the status quo are unacceptable. The European Union spoke out, too. Israel's chief rabbi also protested. Orthodox Judaism is divided on the religious implications of visiting the site. It's also politically controversial in Israel.
0: It's outrageous. It's totally intolerable. And I completely understand the reaction of the international community.
30: Former Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Olmert, speaking to NPR.
0: The uh, desire to visit there is a provocative attitude by this thug who happens to be the Minister of National Security. And it has to stop. And if it will not stop, it will trigger an explosive confrontation.
30: Disputes over the mosque compound have prompted Israeli-Palestinian violence over the years and worried Muslims internationally. Today, the United Arab Emirates protested, and Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's plans to visit the country were reportedly postponed. Xenia Svetlova, Mideast analyst and former Israeli lawmaker, thinks that reaction must have stunned Netanyahu because the UAE led the group of Arab countries that established ties with Israel in the Abraham Accords.
6: This is a clear sign that the Abraham Accord states are not going to just accept uh, this uh, behavior uh, or be silent about it.
30: There was also condemnation from Saudi Arabia, the country Netanyahu is trying to court for a peace deal. After Ben Gvir's visit today, Netanyahu said he's committed to maintaining the status quo at the sensitive religious site. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Tel Aviv.
11: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. In President Biden's first two years in office, the Senate has confirmed 97 federal judges. And because Democrats held the Senate in last year's elections, there's a chance the Senate will confirm even more of Biden's nominees. NPR Justice correspondent Kerry Johnson looks at the long-term implications for the law
35: and people's lives. President Biden has spent more than 30 years on the issue of judges, first in the Senate and now in the White House. Chief of Staff Ron Klain has been by Biden's side through much of that work.
33: This has been a top priority for the president, and I think the record reflects that prioritization.
35: Klain says there's a simple reason why the president's focus on the courts is so intense.
33: When he talks about rights and liberties, he knows those rights and liberties are decided by federal judges the makeup of
28: the federal judiciary is connected to everything else we do.
35: Already, Biden has broken multiple records when it comes to his federal judge nominees. White House lawyer Paige Herwig says the effort is designed to make the courts look like the rest of America. We've confirmed
11: 74 women as federal judges during this administration so far. That's actually more than were confirmed during the four years of President Trump's term or during the eight years of President George W. Bush's administration.
35: That includes Dana Douglas, the first woman of color ever to serve on the Fifth Circuit Appeals Court, and Doris Pryor, the first black woman ever to sit on the Seventh Circuit Appeals Court from Indiana. In all, Biden has nominated and helped win confirmation for 11 black women to sit on the appeals courts, more than all other presidents combined. Janae Nelson is president of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund.
17: Our federal judiciary will finally begin to reflect the
19: diversity of this country and the diversity of experiences that black women in particular can bring to the bench
35: biden's first move on judges involved promoting katanji brown jackson to the federal appeals court in washington dc judge jackson is now justice jackson last year she became the first black woman on the supreme court she's also the first justice who worked as a public defender that's another area biden has prioritized christopher kang works at the group demand justice which advocates for court reform and progressive leaning judges Kang says the president thinks about professional diversity, picking lawyers who represent individuals.
32: They're public defenders representing people accused of crimes. They're civil rights lawyers. They're lawyers who are representing individuals who might have been discriminated against or harmed by defective products.
35: Kang says Biden has already changed the face of the federal judiciary in a way that could linger for decades since federal judges can serve for life. Janae Nelson of the Legal Defense Fund.
17: The imprint that he has on the federal judiciary is one that might be the most durable in his entire legacy as a president and is certainly one of the most laudable accomplishments that he's made to
29: date.
35: This year, the Senate will remain in control of Democrats who have mostly voted in lockstep to support Biden's judges. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said they're just getting started. It's unlikely Biden can shift the balance of power on every federal appeals court in the country over the next two years. That all depends on time and retirements of current judges. And as for the nation's highest court, former President Donald Trump cemented a conservative supermajority on the Supreme Court, one that's already frustrated Biden's agenda on reproductive rights, climate change and gun safety measures. Carrie Johnson, NPR News, Washington. You're listening
12: to All Things Considered from NPR News.
0: Thanks for listening to All Things Considered here on 90.9 WBUR. I'm Steve Brown, 42 degrees in Boston at 549. Ahead, the duo behind the band Sylvan Esso talk about how they came up with their new album, No Rules Sandy. That's ahead here on WBUR. And coming to City Space on January 25th, journalist and historian Dart Adams discusses his book, Instead, We Became Evil. About the life of Danish rapper Slyman. Tickets at wbur.org slash events. In the forecast, we'll have rain tonight, the lows around 40 degrees, cloudy tomorrow, chance of showers throughout the day, the highs will be around 41 degrees. Rain is likely again on Thursday, at the high 41 degrees.
19: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by professional pastry arts at BU's programs in food and wine, teaching the classic and advanced techniques behind making the perfect flaky, buttery treats. Study with world-class bakers and learn what it takes to launch a food-related career in just 14 weeks. More at bu.edu slash foodandwine slash pastry. <laughs>
12: Kevin McCarthy came in with a really razor thin majority, essentially five seats, give or take. And the result of this now is that the hard-right faction of his party now has an enormous amount of power to try to dictate the terms of not only who is Speaker, but how that Speaker might get elected.
27: I'm Michael Barbaro.
30: That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight at 8 on WBUR.
11: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. Fort Adams State Park sits on the coast of Rhode
12: Island. It looks out onto the Narragansett Bay and, by extension, the Atlantic Ocean. And on a sunny Sunday afternoon in July, the band Sylvan Esso announced to the crowd gathered there for the Newport Folk Festival that they had a new album coming out, and then they proceeded to perform
36: it. It was a high unlike any other, honestly. It was so, very rarely do you get to play a new record from start to finish anyway, but to get to debut it that way was so fun.
35: Take care of each other.
4: Usually when any band, I think, is kind of doing the old, here's a new one, it's always a little bit of a crapshoot as to whether or not people are going to follow you along on a bunch of songs that they don't already know the chorus to.
12: Nick Sanborn and Amelia Meath are Sylvan Esso. Their new album, called No Rules Sandy, is out now. Nick and Amelia are married and live together at a home studio they built outside Durham, North Carolina, where they also run a record label. But this album was mostly not made there. This is the fastest
36: record we've ever made from start to finish. We began it on like January 5th after our yearly road trip from North Carolina to Los Angeles. We got to LA with assuming that we were going to go to the Grammys and that we were going to do a lot of writing sessions, but then the Omicron spike happened. So all of a sudden we were in this rental house with a surplus of time. And every day we would just go into our little studio, which was the living room, and see if we could write a song. And because of that, this is a more frenetic and vulnerable and open and weird record.
4: Than we've made in a long
7: time.
4: I think that for us, the last few years, there's been a lot of wood shedding, working on our craft. All of that work kind of just started to pay off. It was just about sitting down and trying to surprise the other one. The easier it came, and the more we trusted it.
29: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
12: When I you that idea of trying to surprise the other one as you're collaborating, as you're creating together, is that, is that new for you?
36: No, it's kind of always been the basis of how we figure out what we're going to do next is we follow the things that make the other one excited. When you've been working together for as long as Nick and I have, the real joy is in the surprise.
12: Give us an example of how that surprise shows up in No Rule, Sandy.
36: Oh, well, like, usually whenever I do a vocal take, I do melody and lyrics at the same time, and I write them out in my notebook. And then when I do a vocal take, it's the first time that Nick has heard the words that I've written or the melody that I've created. So to me, that's always present. It's actually how we got the name for the record, because in a backup line in the song, Your Reality... I say, no rules for me, no rules lately, no rules, Sandy. What does no rules, Sandy,
12: what does that mean to you? I, I Your reality is one of my favorite songs on the album.
36: Thank you. That's nice to hear you say that because so many people have been, uh, we're in Los Angeles, so it's been a lot of like sweet, delicate guys in hats being like, yeah, but that's weird. Um... <laughs> the rules originally but or we're learning how to be surreal but free it's your reality um, hold on i'm sorry i got distracted by making fun of men and i forgot what you were gonna <laughs> say that what happens what to asking. me often it
8: really does <laughs> <laughs>
12: I
36: wanted to talk to you about the name of the album, No Rules, Sandy. What does that mean? It became kind of a mantra for us where all of the guiding principles that we had used that were about making a pop record, we kind of threw away. There's a lot of people
27: dancing downtown. They fall down with some stick, where they got It's an echo party ringing all around.
36: Pop is such a study in, in like form and sound and um, we feel like we learned the rules and figured out how to write pop songs in the way that we write them so we threw all those things away and began again.
4: On especially our last two records, there was always this other, these other elements in the room of like, you know, how's this going to play on a stage? How's this going to feel at a festival? How's radio going to feel about this? How's so, you know, all of these other things were kind of hanging there in the air. And I think for this one, just none of that was, you know, I was, we were truly just thinking about, you know, our own and each other's like delight. And, and feeling confident in making stranger and stranger choices. I think after the last couple records, we felt like we said what we wanted to say with that. And, and now we're kind of in our own strange musical space that is only defined by what the two of us like.
12: As a listener, one of the songs that I was, found myself sort of mesmerized by when I was listening to the album is Coming Back to You because it is so different than everything else on the album. It's intense and it's timeless. I'm
36: 85 I'm 16 I am a A baby Tell us about this song. I learned how to play guitar during the pandemic, like so many of us (laughs) did. And it was one of the first songs I wrote on the guitar, I think. Right, Sandy?
4: Yeah. Yeah. To me, this song is interesting because it's one of the only ones that was actually written apart. Amelia wrote Mm. this and sent it to me when when we weren't together. And immediately I was like, this has to be on the next record that we make. And when we were making this, it just felt like... You know, there's this themes of all of the, you know, all of the tumultuous changes we've all dealt with in the last two years. I really feel apparent to me on the record. And closing it with this moment where, you know, she's singing to me as we're reuniting felt like that was the only way it could go.
36: Come back to you.
12: Amelia Meath and Nick Sanborn, thank you so much for talking with us today.
36: Thank you.
4: Yeah, thanks so much for having us back.
12: That was Nick Sanborn and Amelia Meath from the band Sylvan Esso. Their new album, No Rule Sandy, is out now.
36: I'm on a ribbon, a concrete, and
20: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Viking dedicated to bringing travelers to the heart of each destination by river and ocean. Offering programs designed for cultural enrichment and immersive experiences on board and on shore. Viking.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of VIX NyQuil Severe, a nighttime cold and flu medication designed to relieve up to nine cold and flu symptoms. More at VIX.com. And from Progressive Insurance with its Name Your Price tool a way to see coverage options based on a driver's budget. Learn more at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. And from the listeners who support this NPR station.
0: Thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR. Representative Kevin McCarthy loses his first three votes for Speaker to become Speaker of the House, and Charlie Baker is scheduled to leave office for the final time this week. Keep listening. To WBUR. In the forecast, rain tonight, the lows around 40 degrees. Cloudy tomorrow with a chance of showers throughout the day. The highs will be around 41 degrees. Rain is likely on Thursday, the high around 41. Could get some snow early on Friday before changing over to clouds and rain. The highs 39 degrees.
19: I'm here and now host Robin Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
0: Buffalo Bills safety DeMar Hamlin remains hospitalized in Cincinnati following his collapse last night during a game against the Bengals. The Bills say he had a cardiac arrest after a tackle. It's Tuesday, January 3rd. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Steve Brown. Coming up, we'll have the latest on Hamlin's condition. Also ahead, the long and winding road in Washington for House Republican Leader Kevin McCarthy, who after three votes still failed to get enough votes to become Speaker of the House. And Governor Charlie Baker says thanks to the people of Massachusetts and reflects on the things he'll remember most as he prepares to leave
1: office. Despite a myriad of political fights and distractions that were raging all around us, people here chose to focus on the work and it paid off. We'll hear
0: some excerpts from Baker's address. It's 601 Now This News.
33: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. House lawmakers were hoping perhaps the third time might be a charm for a vote to elect a new speaker but not so much. In fact, things deteriorated at the outset of the opening day of the 118th Congress with back-to-back failed votes for California's Kevin McCarthy to be the new leader of the House. McCarthy repeatedly unable to get the votes needed to win. Fellow Republican Steve Scalise expressed frustration as the passing of the gavel remained stalled.
25: It was during morning rush hour on April 12th of last
33: McCarthy is fighting with more conservative members of his own party who are refusing to give him the votes needed after failing to elect a speaker. The House has now adjourned until noon tomorrow. Frank James, the man who opened fire on a crowded New York City subway train last year, has pleaded guilty to terrorism charges in federal court. NPR's Jasmine Guards reports.
25: It was during morning rush hour on April 12th of last year when Frank James entered a Brooklyn subway train, allegedly put on a gas mask, set off a smoke device and started firing at passengers. Authorities say he fired at least 33 times, wounding 10 people. Several others had to be taken to the hospital due to smoke inhalation. The attack was one of the worst in the city Subway's history. In the weeks prior, James, who is black, posted videos on social media ranting about race, New York's public transportation, and approach to crime. But it's not clear what the motivation was behind the attack. His lawyers have said he has a history of mental illness. James now faces up to life in prison. Jasmine Garst, NPR News, New York.
33: The former top lawyer for the House of Representatives is moving to work for a gun safety group. NPR's Carrie Johnson reports. Doug Letter has pursued high-profile cases throughout his career.
35: Doug Letter worked for 40 years inside the Justice Department before moving on to serve as general counsel for the House of Representatives. In that job, Letter won the case for Congress to access former President Trump's tax returns. Now, Letter's joining the Brady Center to prevent gun violence as its chief legal officer. Letter says he's motivated by the number of mass shootings at schools and other sites. Last year, the Supreme Court struck down a New York gun control law, making it easier to challenge gun restrictions across the country. In his new role, Letter will oversee legal work to represent victims of gun violence. Kerry Johnson, NPR News, Washington.
33: A lackluster start to the new trading year on Wall Street as most people are still absorbing the punishing market losses from the year gone by. All three of the major U.S. stock market indexes were down on the first official trading day of 2023. The Dow fell 10 points to 33,136. The Nasdaq was down 79 points. The Standard Poor's 500 closed down 15 points today. You're listening to NPR.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. Governor Charlie Baker has delivered a farewell speech. On Thursday, he'll leave office after eight years in the post. Baker gave an online address this afternoon and called the thousands of local community events he attended during his vet tenure, his FUEL, He also recounted accomplishments, including turning a state budget deficit into a surplus, increasing broadband access, finishing infrastructure projects, passing a housing reform bill, and guiding the state through the COVID-19 pandemic. The moderate Republican also gave a nod to the
1: increasing polarization in politics. Despite a myriad of political fights and distractions that were raging all around us, people here chose to focus on the work, and it paid off. The personal and professional generosity, from the Berkshires to Cape Cod and every place in between, was always there. Baker
0: is slated to take the helm of the National Collegiate Athletic Association in March. There are new rules of the road in Massachusetts designed to protect bicyclists and pedestrians. Yesterday, the governor signed a road safety measure into law. It requires additional mirrors and visibility devices on large trucks and side guards to prevent bicyclists from getting swept under the moving vehicles. Longtime Bill sponsor, Senator Will Brownsberger, says the safety measures are in response to recent problems in greater Boston.
28: We've had tragic accidents where trucks swinging around swept somebody under their wheels. And we've had accidents where trucks started up and crushed people who were right in front of them, but they just couldn't see because of the the height of their hood.
0: The new law also requires cyclists to wear red lights on their back to increase their visibility and requires drivers to give four feet of space when they pass a pedestrian or cyclist on the road. Massachusetts has launched a new behavioral help Help behavioral health helpline today. People can call or text the number 833 Make that eight three three seven 773 bhhl 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Helpline staff will offer support, initial clinical assessments, and referrals to treatment for all mental health conditions, including substance use disorders. The launch of the Helpline coincides with the opening of 25 community behavioral health centers around the state. The Centers offer walk-in care and are meant to help people avoid emergency rooms. Several Boston-area school districts are encouraging students and staff to wear face masks for the next few days or next few weeks boston newton lexington and arlington are among the public school districts strongly encouraging face coverings the recommendations are in a response to concerns of a potential spike in illness following the winter holiday break when many students traveled and attended large gatherings. In the forecast, we'll have some rain tonight. The low is around 40 degrees. Cloudy tomorrow with a chance of showers throughout the day. The high will be around 41. Rain is likely on Thursday. The high is around 41 degrees. Right now, it's 42 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR.
10: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by FJC, a foundation of philanthropic funds working to meet the needs of the nonprofit sector through donor-advised funds, fiscal sponsorships, and bridge lending. More at fjc.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR
12: News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. DeMar Hamlin remains hospitalized in critical condition after suffering cardiac arrest in an NFL game last night. He collapsed in the first quarter of the matchup between his Buffalo Bills and the Cincinnati Bengals. The game was postponed after Hamlin was transported by ambulance to a hospital. NPR's Tom Goldman joins me now. Hi, Tom. Hi, Juana. So, Tom, what's the latest news on DeMar Hamlin's condition?
13: We're not getting a lot, uh, bits and pieces, mostly from his team. And this afternoon, the Bills released a short statement. It read, Demar Hamlin spent last night in the intensive care unit and remains there today in critical condition at the University of Cincinnati Medical Center. We are grateful and thankful for the outpouring of support we have received thus far. Now, there have been no details from UC Medical Center doctors about Hamlin, about what caused his cardiac arrest, which followed what appeared to be a fairly routine tackle in last Last night's game. I spoke to a UC Health spokeswoman this afternoon and asked if there were any updates or press briefings scheduled, and the spokeswoman said, not at this time.
12: Hmm. So have we heard anything today from his family? I understand that family members were at the game last night, and reports say that his mother rode with him in the ambulance to the hospital.
13: Yeah, that's right. Um, uh, In a tweet today titled, From the Family of Damar Hamlin, it said, We want to express our sincere gratitude for the love and support shown to Damar during this challenging time. We are deeply moved by the prayers, kind words, and donations from fans around the country. Now, it's pretty extraordinary, Juana, what's happened with those donations. Damar Hamlin started a GoFundMe page last month to raise money for Christmas toys for underprivileged kids. His original goal was $2,500. At last check, donations were more than $4.5 million mm. and climbing. Um, The family's tweet also acknowledges the first responders at last night's game who tended to Hamlin almost immediately after he collapsed. Their efforts using CPR and reportedly a defibrillator were critical in getting his heart restarted on the field. Uh, The family also acknowledged the healthcare professionals at the UC Medical Center who've been treating Hamlin since last night.
12: So, Tom, through these terrifying circumstances, DeMar Hamlin is suddenly a household name, but... What else? What can you tell us about him?
13: Yeah, you know, it's safe to say outside of Buffalo or Pittsburgh, where he played in college, he was not well-known, only 24 in just his second year in the NFL. His foundation and toy drive tells you something about who he is, and also in an interview on the program, One Bills Live, Hamlin talked about how special it's been to play alongside Buffalo defensive back Dane Jackson, who's a few years older than Hamlin, but the two were childhood friends and college teammates before playing in the NFL together. Here's Demar.
14: Um, just having someone like Dane just being able to just play with me, um, it feels so surreal. Like I can't even describe it, but I, I cherish it every second that I can, you know, every second of every day. We just had our prayer, our, our DB prayer we do every Wednesday. Mm. Outside, he was next to me, and I just grabbed his hand a little bit harder just because, you know, you never know when, like, the last day could be that you get getting to experience something like this, you know. So I'm just – I'm cherishing it every moment I can. Mm.
12: And, of course, amid all of this, a lot of mine's not on football, but this did happen during a game last night about an hour after Hamlin collapsed. The NFL postponed that game. Are there any updates about what might happen there?
13: Yeah, the NFL said today in a statement, the Bills-Bengals game will not be resumed this week. The league said the decision came after speaking with both teams and leaders of the players union. The NFL hasn't made a decision on uh, possibly resuming the game at a later date. You know, this all comes during the last week of the regular season when teams are jockeying for playoff position. In fact, last night's game was a highly anticipated one. Buffalo and Cincinnati are mm-hmm. two of the NFL's best teams, and the and the outcome would have helped determine who gets a bye at the the start of the playoffs. Not significant though though right now for obvious reasons.
11: NPR's Tom Goldman. Thank you, Tom. You're welcome. Republican Congressman Kevin McCarthy ensured his place in history today. By falling short in the first vote to become Speaker of the House. Today marks the first time in a century, 100 years, that a speaker was not chosen on the first ballot. Jillian Brassel is a congressional reporter with McClatchy, D.C. She is in the Capitol. Jillian, thanks so much for joining us on a really busy day. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for having me. I want you to step back because I know you've covered him a long time. Help us understand why does he want this job so badly?
15: Right. Kevin McCarthy has been in politics since he was in college, so he is Bakersfield through and through. He represents California's new 20th Congressional District, and he's been there his entire life. When he was in college, he started working for then Congressman Bill Thomas and later went on to the California State Assembly in 2002. For the last two years of that position, actually, he was the minority leader in the California State Assembly Chamber. So, when he came here, elected in 2006, to succeed his congressman that he had been working for prior to that, he quickly rose through the ranks to become the GOP's third in command, later on to become the House Majority Leader. And in 2015, actually, he had a bid to become Speaker at the time, but Fell short and withdrew before he ended up getting there. Obviously, right. he's the House Minority Leader as of last term.
11: You're describing someone who's had his eye on this top job for a long time, who feels like he's been training for it, and that is um, that is scoring with something. I, I read some of the reporting uh, by your fellow reporters there on the Hill today. Politico was reporting that he that he shouted, "I earned this job," at his detractors today. That that he seems to have a sense that he has owed the speakership. He 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 won this.
15: Right. Yes. Kevin McCarthy is someone who definitely tries to get a lot of people on his side. He Definitely has been negotiating this for a while. And in that caucus room this morning, when he was speaking to his fellow Republicans about securing this position today, he was was saying, what do you need uh, essentially for me to get this? One of his biggest concessions, actually, that he made in order to try to secure the vote and uh, support was agreeing to a rule that would allow just five lawmakers to call a snap vote at any time to oust the speaker.
11: hmm. He, I mean, he's been known over his career and certainly uh, in his years on Congress as, as a people person, somebody good at attracting allies as he tried to rise through the ranks in his party. How should we square that? How do you square that with the man we're watching today, hemorrhaging support, battling with opponents?
15: Yes, that's been something that's really defined his career, and I can say that going all the way back to Bakersfield, where people there still know him as Kevin, as someone who walks around in uh, jeans and T-shirts, um, someone who still orders red sauce and beans at Luigi's, which is an Italian deli there. He definitely knows how to fit the crowd that he's in. Um, he definitely knows how to appeal to whoever he's with at the time, but. That seems to have fallen short at this moment uh, as he's tried to make these concessions to get people, uh, especially from the House Freedom Caucus, on his side and supporting him.
11: Yeah. Uh, We just have about 30 seconds left. But how is this playing with his constituents? Are they following this drama in Washington? Does he have their support?
15: Yeah, I've been in the House all day, so I haven't had the opportunity to speak with constituents directly as of this moment. But I have to say about the San Joaquin Valley in general, where Bakersfield is, a lot of people don't follow the Washington, D.C. sort of politics. They're they struggling with a lot of certain other issues, as it's a very rural agricultural area that right. needs a lot of support in different ways.
11: That uh, is McClatchy, D.C. congressional reporter Jillian Brassel. Thanks very much. Thank you. A Russian citizen was found dead today
12: in eastern India. Normally, that wouldn't make international headlines, but this is the third Russian to be found dead in the same part of India in a span of less than two weeks. That's prompted questions about whether the deaths are a tragic coincidence or possibly something more sinister. NPR's Lauren Freyer reports from Mumbai that the story
17: began right around Christmas.
16: Two Russians were found dead in a span of four days in the same hotel. In Breathless
17: reports One have been airing on Indian TV for the past 10 days, with details straight out of a spy novel. Mysterious deaths of Russian citizens, days apart, in a relatively poor part of eastern India. One of the victims was a multi-millionaire sausage magnate and Russian lawmaker named Pavel Antov. He reportedly had earlier this year briefly put out a message that was critical of the war in Ukraine. The The message was later deleted, and he posted support for Vladimir Putin. But right around Christmas, he turned up in the news in India. He'd apparently fallen to his death from a third-story hotel window in the Indian state of Odisha. Police said he was on vacation there. But Odisha is far from sites most popular with foreign tourists. Around the same time, one of Antov's traveling companions, a fellow Russian, was found dead in the same hotel. Afterward, the medical examiner told Indian TV... ...that the bodies had already been cremated, no evidence retained. Indian authorities have provided scant detail. They even blocked journalists from visiting the hotel where Antov and his friend died. That has fueled speculation, since Russia does have a track record of assassinating dissidents. Asked about all of this at a foreign ministry briefing, an Indian government spokesperson, Arundham Bakshi, called the Russian deaths unfortunate.
18: And we need to figure out what what exactly are the details, but this is for the... It's a police uh, matter, so I I don't want to jump that gun.
17: He declined to comment further. Today, police had another matter to deal with, though. Another Russian body. That of a 51-year-old engineer found dead this morning in his sleeping compartment on the commercial ship where he worked. It was docked in an Indian port in the same eastern part of the country, Odisha. Lauren Freyer, NPR News, Mumbai.
11: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good evening. I'm Steve Brown. 42 degrees in Boston at 619. On Wall Street today, stocks closed the first trading day of 2023 down slightly. The Dow was down 0.03% at 33,136. NASDAQ down 0.76% at 10,387. And the S&P 500 was off four tenths of a percent at 3824. In other business news, the spinoff of General Electric's healthcare division becomes official tomorrow. Boston-based GE approved the change in November. It's the first of three planned spinoffs. GE Healthcare Technologies is known for making medical equipment like ultrasound machines. Starting tomorrow, it will be based in Chicago. Its stock will trade on the NASDAQ and be part of the S&P 500 index.
26: This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Thayer Academy, an independent co-ed day school since 1877, inspiring students in grades 5 through 12. Winter Open House, January 4th, thayer.org.
0: Stay informed with what's happening in the news. Listen to the WBUR mobile app while you're working out or heading out the door to go to work. In the forecast, rain tonight, the lows around 40 degrees, cloudy tomorrow, chance of showers throughout the day, the highs around 41 degrees.
19: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Catchlight Painting, committed to meticulous interior and exterior painting, including new and historic properties. See their portfolio at catchlightpainting.com. This is All Things Considered
12: from
11: NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. The U.S. stands out for its high rate of maternal mortality. It's a crisis that disproportionately affects Black Americans, and it's only gotten worse during the pandemic. But we do have tools to make pregnancy safer. NPR's Laura Benshoff reports on lessons learned
3: from one longstanding program supporting new parents. A couple of years ago, Lauren Brown had a high-risk pregnancy. Brown was over 35, she had high blood pressure, and she'd had a blood clot that could have been deadly. That required her to take a medication during pregnancy called Lovinox.
9: That's a blood thinner, so I had to do that, inject myself every day.
3: When it came time to give birth to her daughter, Bella, Brown needed an emergency C-section.
9: When my OB said her heart rate is skipping a little bit, both her dad and I just like, okay.
3: ALL OF THIS INCREASED THE LIKELIHOOD THAT BROWN'S PREGNANCY COULD HAVE TAKEN A DANGEROUS TURN. BUT SHE LOOKS BACK AT THAT TIME CALMLY.
9: YOU KNOW, IT WAS A LITTLE SCARY. BUT BEING THAT I HAD THE NURSING GROUP, I REALLY FELT LIKE MY PREGNANCY WAS VERY SMOOTH.
3: THAT NURSING GROUP IS PART OF A NATIONAL PROGRAM CALLED THE NURSE-FAMILY PARTNERSHIP. IT PAIRS LOW-INCOME FIRST-TIME MOMS WITH A PERSONAL NURSE UNTIL THEIR CHILD IS TWO. Where Brown lives outside Philadelphia, it's run through a local community foundation. On a recent visit, nurse Christina Baker checks in with Brown and Bella, now a toddler. Baker says her job isn't just to follow her patients' medical care closely, but to help parents do that too. And that's one thing I try to stress with them early on is you need to advocate for yourself because this is your baby, this is your pregnancy, and we want the best outcome. With so much bad news about pregnancy-related deaths in the U.S., it can be easy to lose sight of this fact. We know a lot about how to do better. The Nurse-Family Partnership model has been studied for decades. Joyce Edmonds is a nursing professor at Boston College who's not affiliated with the program. I'm a fan
20: of the Nurse-Family Partnership project because as a scientist, when I look at the data, it's extremely compelling.
3: Studies show the partnership lowers the rates of some maternal mortality risk factors, such as high blood pressure, but it can cost more than $9,000 per family, and it doesn't fix bigger gaps in health coverage, such as the millions of uninsured adults in the U.S. Dr. Rose Molina, an OBGYN and professor at Harvard Medical School, says that stat is troubling because of how chronic illnesses make pregnancy more dangerous.
22: It's really important that people get access to high-quality primary care and so they can have chronic diseases like hypertension and diabetes better managed so that they're the healthiest they can be during pregnancy.
3: As a result, some researchers say expanding federally-backed health insurance, known as Medicaid, could make a big dent in the maternal death rate. As of 2022, 11 states have chosen not to do that. Molina says beyond big policy changes, there's work to do on a smaller scale to address the crisis.
22: I think there's a growing recognition that trust is a critical component that has not been given the full attention that it needs.
3: Part of the Nurse-Family Partnership model is building a trusting relationship. Research shows having a nurse, doula, or midwife in your corner can help bridge the racial divide in pregnancy outcomes. 19-year-old mom J.D. Lorenzo has had trouble with trust in the past. She had depression when she was younger and remembers getting passed around between therapists.
23: And now I have to sit here, tell my whole life story again, get comfortable with them, do stuff with them,
3: and then they leave again. DiLorenzo says she likes that her nurse, through the partnership, Carol Kriesman, has been checking in reliably since about March. Baby Hayden was born in May. During a recent visit, he's all gummy smiles in his red onesie. Kriesman gushes about his latest milestone.
16: And Jay, he can sit up now. Yes, he can. He's
3: so cute sitting up. And she'll be there for his next milestone, too. Laura Benshoff, NPR News.
0: This is All Things Considered on 90.9 WBUR. I'm Steve Brown. Tomorrow will be Charlie Baker's last full day as governor of Massachusetts. Governor-elect Mara Healy takes over on Thursday at noon. Today, Baker delivered a farewell address to the people of
1: Massachusetts. Here are some excerpts from that speech. After eight sometimes crazy years as your governor, I thought I should take a few minutes to deliver what my late mom would have called a proper goodbye. This one comes with mixed emotions. Lieutenant Governor Karen Polito and I will leave the State House tomorrow for the last time. We will do so with love and appreciation for what you, the people of Massachusetts, have shown us from day one. Your kindness and generosity were always on display. Neighbors helping neighbors, local leaders going above and beyond, businesses big and small standing up for their communities. And with your help, and in collaboration with our legislative colleagues, we went on to accomplish so much more. We took a billion dollar budget deficit, turned it into a $5 billion surplus, and gave $3 billion back to taxpayers and put $7 billion into the state's rainy day fund. We delivered major infrastructure projects long promised but never done. We passed the first major housing reform bill in decades so we can finally do something about the cost of owning a home. And we did it all without partisan bickering. I could go on, but where we really got to work together was during the pandemic. When food pantries got stretched thin, local leaders adapted, recruited new volunteers, partnered with the National Guard and delivered for their communities. Across the state, you manned texting sites and vaccine clinics and helped us find medical gear made major adjustments to the way you worked and the way you played, checked in on your neighbors and supported first responders, healthcare and other frontline workers. And while I know that many of you didn't agree with all of the decisions the Lieutenant Governor and I made during the pandemic, you tried your very best to abide by the rules and to share in the work to be done. I believe that's why we've recovered almost all the jobs we lost during the pandemic why we have an unemployment rate that's below the national average, and why the nationally renowned Commonwealth Fund concluded that we did a better job of managing the pandemic than every other state except Hawaii. Despite a myriad of political fights and distractions that were raging all around us, people here chose to focus on the work and it paid off. The personal and professional generosity From the Berkshires to Cape Cod and every place in between was always there. We were there too, in the front row, watching it and appreciating it for eight cherished years. We've been fortunate to be invited to thousands of fairs, ribbon cuttings, conferences, dinners, and diners. But one event for me stands out. On a trip to D.C. in 2021, I visited the Massachusetts National Guard members, who were deployed to the Capitol. 450 citizen soldiers, ages 18 to 58, from every corner of Massachusetts, from every race and religion, all there to serve their commonwealth and their country, no matter when the call comes. That visit for me is the embodiment of the commitment and generosity of the people of Massachusetts. It is our fervent hope that your generosity never wavers. It is truly what makes you special, and it's the foundation on which we can continue to build great communities and a great commonwealth. We are deeply grateful for the gifts you've given us over these past eight years, and I want you to know that you will be sorely missed by the two of us and by our teams. God bless you.
0: Those are excerpts from Governor Charlie Baker's farewell address to the people of Massachusetts. Stay with WBUR as we provide coverage of Baker's final day tomorrow and join us Thursday morning at 11 for coverage and analysis of the inauguration of Governor-elect Mara Healy. It's 42 degrees in Boston at 6.30. Stocks were off slightly on this first day of trading in 2023. Marketplace is coming up next here at 6.30 here on WBUR. We'll have some rain tonight. The low's around 40 degrees, cloudy tomorrow. Chances of some showers throughout the day. The highs will be around 41 degrees.
26: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zevin Asset Management, building socially responsible investment portfolios that help create a healthy planet. Learn how to have impact at Zevin.com.